this is going to be the weirdest episode. I mean, it really is because I, I we're either going to go super long, mm-hmm. or we're going to go super short, right? Like, because because it's eight different stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Each one of them is. That's right. They're all done in ones, um, but they're all kind of terrible. And I don't like. I really can't tell if we're going to end up just massively running long or not. We can't, of course. Yes. Like, we can only really do fifteen minutes per per issue. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to try and try and keep us on a clock. Oh man, that's great. <laughs> we'll we'll see. We'll see if that happens. Hello, whatnots. Welcome to Baxter Building, episode 12, or what should really be called the sad one. <laughs> I'm Graham McMillan. I'm one of your two hosts for this show, and with me is the brains of the operation. Oh, uh, yeah. I am I am Jeff Lester. Hello. And startled by being called the brains. Because what I am is Graham and I actually are constantly competing for the heart and more than willing to default the brains to the other person. But uh, <laughs> it just shows you who we are. The brains, that's fine. Yeah, that's I that's. Think right. I think I, I think I'm too sad to be the brains this time around. You know, uh, I'm just like... It's, it's... So, okay, the reason both of us are talking about this being sad is uh, we have made it to the end of the Stanley Jack Kirby run of Fantastic Four. The issues in this episode are 95 through 102, which are Kirby's final issues as co-plotter and artist. And Jeff pointed out in email uh, earlier this week that for a couple of episodes now, if not more, I've been like, well... These were these issues weren't that bad, but wait till next time it gets really bad. And this is the issue. These are the issues. This is the episode where things get really bad. Yeah, yeah. All the other times I would walk in being like, okay, now it gets dire. And there would always be bits and pieces. Like there'd be like an off episode issue or maybe two off issues. And then one that would be like really good and fun, you know? And it was just, it was one of those deals where, especially I feel like for me as a Kirby fan, I feel like maybe, maybe there was an, an overabundance of plausible deniability because if we hit ones where there were clunkers and there really were, part of me would be like, well, you know, Plotting isn't necessarily Kirby's strong suit, and here you see Stan really misunderstanding what he, what's going on or trying to, you know, add a dash of instant drama to something and, and only confusing things, you know, further. Uh, you know, there was always just kind of but, those various we, outs, you know, you know. But we'd always get to the, you know, this is not that good, like, plot-wise, but then look at that splash page. Absolutely. You know, there was so much of that. Yeah. And on these issues... I mean, Kirby's checked out. He Kirby's, is so checked out. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Uh, to the point where, just before we started recording, I was thinking that I was going to say that these were, you know, these are fairly serviceable fill-in issues. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's kind of sad that it, come, it comes at the end of its run. But they're not even serviceable fill-in issues. Like, there's real, real problems with some of these comics in terms of pacing. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's interesting because in the previous Baxter building, a perusal, a quick perusal of the 
bullpen bulletin pages and letter pages uh, had sort of talked about how in response to, I guess, some uh, reader complaints, Marvel was going to stop doing the long dragged out epics and was going to go back to doing more done in ones. Mm -hmm. And I feel as if, cause, cause I actually saw in that last batch, you know, the point where on the bullpen bulletin page, they, they more or less take it back. They more or less go, Oh, you know what? We've listened to Once we said that we got just as many complaints. And so, well, you know, we're just going to go back. We're going to keep things organic, but I don't think that it's surprising. Like whatever is going on to, to make, Issues 95 through 102 make every issue except 102 a done-in-one and and one that is really not... I think if you go back and you look at other Kirby done-in-ones through his run of the Fantastic Four, they are not nearly as rushed-seeming as yeah, these there, are. Yeah, there's a real half-assed quality mm -hmm. to the plotting and pacing in these issues. In yeah, yeah, the, the pacing almost always seems to come out of nowhere. And I'm just going to say it, I think Stanley is the MVP of this the issues in these episodes because he really has to dance to tie some of this shit up. Yeah. Because Kirby is, I want to even say it might be as early as 95, is clearly not giving a shit about oh, closure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, in the slightest, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm going to say, with that out of the way, I think we should just speed through these. Yes. Before we started recording, I told Jeff that I'm going to try and hold us to the clock because there's there's a concern that we might just get hung up on how bad these things are. It's totally true. Run out of time. So yeah. I'm going to say, Jeff, 15 minutes an issue at most. Mm. Are you ready? Yes, by which okay. I mean no. Okay, go. Issue 95, the fabulous FF must do the impossible or else tomorrow... World War Three. Yes. Um, and Interesting, the man called the Monocle. Sorry, not even called the Monocle. Called Monocle. Yes, exactly. The man called Monocle, which the thing that I love about that is, A, it's really underwhelming. Like, that is, admittedly, if Kirby's not trying too hard, there are other parts where, like, Lee has to really hustle throughout these issues. But the idea that he's going to call him Monocle, I actually laughed when, like, page two happens and the man who is snapping a camera in a relatively splashy-looking splash page uh, on page one, you see him pull the camera down, and he does, in fact, have a monocle. It's not like... Only, but not only does he have a monocle, he's you, taking the photograph using the, his monocle eye for the... the I know! Uh, I'm like, that, is that how optics work? <laughs> I know, it's just... I, it's I, Because so. he's called monocle... And because you get the monocle reveal so quickly, yeah. I genuinely thought the monocle was going to be some sort of like super device. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like a shoe mm -hmm. raise? Spoilers, it doesn't. No. <laughs> He's no. just a dude wearing a monocle. Um, he is specifically a dude pretending to be a journalist, a photojournalist, who is in town in New York to destabilize a United Nations meeting and plunge the world into World War III. That is right. Uh, also, it's a real shame that he never comes back. I, I really would love to see a story called Peril is a Man Called Bifocals to kind of follow this up. Because <laughs> it really is. I'm always like, Monocle, it's not that interesting. Like, if you think about it, it really is. Like, despite the fact that the monocle is, you know, a symbol of the aristocracy, it, I mean, it's also kind of like, you know, it's... 
it is it is a thing that people who are visually disabled need to use. So it's always very strange to me to see it like broken out here. And again, used to photograph things with a camera, which makes no sense. But then it almost makes no sense that the Fantastic Four have been assigned to actually be bodyguards for the UNN, the UN uh, diplomats, and are going to fulfill that duty by either standing around on a roof, as on page three, or just popping into the Fantastic car and flying around, as on pages four and five. It yeah. seems it, it's there is. Uh, th- th- this is uh, an issue that makes no sense. Yeah. In in any way whatsoever. In, so in a charitable does, sense, yeah. Not only does the FF's plan to defend the uh, the UN delegates make no sense, because they really are. They're standing on top of the Bucks building, then they get in their, their fantastic car and just fly around. But by happenstance, then, they're attacked by the Monocle. Yes. Well, by coincidence, they're attacked by the Monocle. Or not even attacked. They... Uh, because they are attacked in terms of reading Sue. Yes. But Ben just happens to come across a building that's falling down. Well, actually, you know, on the bottom of page two, I mean, okay, let's put it this way. Kirby has it plotted as if that was the case, which admittedly is some pretty weak sauce. But if you think about it, Stanley's justification at the bottom of page two, where the monocle is, and what better way for the monocle to test the new track ray than on the Fantastic Four themselves? I'm like, technically, that's a terrible idea. Like, do some pre-testing. Read consumer reports. Just the idea that the monocle's like, huh, I've got to kill these diplomats. Oh, you know, I should. What if take, I try and kill some superheroes? Why don't I take out some superheroes too? Like that's really going to make my job a lot easier. Like you know, so uh, yeah. if anything, it should be the other way around, shouldn't it? The, the, Last time I checked, you and delegates were not orange and made of rocks. Could not go invisible. Could not set themselves on fire. I mean, they probably could set themselves. Yeah, on, right. To a slightly different degree, and they definitely could not stretch their arms or, or other body parts. Right. In yeah. Fantastical manners, but yeah, that that's what he does. Anyway, he does what he does, Jeff. He does what Ours he does. Ours is not to second-guess the monocle. No, ours is to second-guess Stanley, who's busy in the process of second-guessing Jack Kirby. Which, and, and again, what I find fascinating is Kirby, as we've talked about, is a haphazard plotter. And yet, it is amazing what a thin line really seems to exist between Kirby's haphazard plotting and Kirby just not paying attention at all, such as this issue. Like, you can really tell. Like, there is a sequence where, after Reed and Sue get hit by the monocle's amazing Pentac new track ray and crash into the harbor, which I thought was actually kind of a, a fun drawn sequence, you get uh, Ben Grimm flying around in his jet, and just the scene on page seven where he sees a building collapse has to park the jet, run to the building, grab it, and pull it up, resulting in the full-page spread of him holding up an entire building, is, it's really, it's kind of backwardsly plotted. Again, I yes. really feel I, that, yeah. It, it's super strange. And then to go from that to the monocle, clearly taking a photograph of Ben holding mm-hmm. the building up, mm-hmm. but he's talking about shooting down... Mm-hmm. It's fantastic and the invisible girl. Yeah. It's it's very, very, very strange. Yeah. Um you might be wondering, listeners, where Johnny is in all of this. Mm-hmm. Johnny as an interlude on page eleven and twelve that leads into 
a really genuinely great splash page on page 13 uh, is, is, is breaking up with Crystal, I guess. Crystal has, has decided that she has to go back to the Inhumans. Right. Even though the thought of us parting just breaks my heart. Yes. Uh, she, it's, it's a very strange scene. Because it clearly is setting up a subplot, but a subplot that is not actually followed up on in the way that Fantastic Four subplots traditionally are. Yeah. In fact, what I find fascinating about this, and I didn't follow through until un- until we get to sort of the second half of this, is sort of the same way that we have, um, if you think of Galactus, Ben getting body swapped uh, as kind of you know, greatest hits stories and, and the Frightful Four apparently being them, you kind of get this attempt to sort of redo the great Johnny Storm uh, subplot, which is, the, you know, him pining for love with Crystal, being torn, uh, having her torn from his arms and and basically being miserable and love-wrecked and, and ultimately going off on a quest to retrieve yes. her. Going, going solo, but mm-hmm. instead of before... Where Johnny went solo over the course of a few issues. Yeah. Johnny basically is miserable for about three issues. Yes. And then in an issue, yeah. just literally takes off to unfind her. It's very, very strange that again, the the pacing of that subplot right. is super odd. Which we will come back to because it really does it it makes uh it it really makes uh, Johnny's handlings during the Prester John storyline, where he almost blows up the entire hemisphere, um, seem rational and well thought out to the behavior that <laughs> yeah, we're going it, to get. It kind of does. Yeah. Um, but yes, page 13, where he's looking uh, mournfully, and my favorite part, smoldering uh, with flame. Well, he's actually burned off his clothes. Yes, which is great. The panel where he's like rushing for Medusa and Crystal on page 12. And it is worth noting out, Crystal is being led off by her hair, um, by Medusa's hair. Yes, yeah, she, she is essentially being kidnapped. Yeah, it, it is. It is kind of looking at it now. I'm like, oh, there's a little bit more of a reason why Johnny will later go on to kind of barge in like a super asshole once you kind of think of that. But um but yeah, him him heartbroken is really striking to me in, in no small part because of as a Kirby fan, like I didn't I always sort of really thought that Kirby's art really metamorphosized so much during his time at DC that when he comes back to Marvel in the late seventies, his work is, you know, transformed into even more idiosyncratic. But yeah. But this page, this yeah. page is this page really feels like seventies Marvel era Kirby, exactly. like even post New Gods, even post DC stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This totally looks like something that would have popped up as a full page splash uh, in, like, say, Captain America one hundred and ninety eight or something like that. Yeah, so. it's it's very strange. I have to say, even though the the pacing in this issue is terrible, mm-hmm. I really like the art in this issue. I think this is. Of the of all the issues we're covering, this is by far the strongest. Hmm, interesting. I I don't necessarily know if I agree, frankly, but um, we'll have to see until there's a, a 
We'll have to see until there's a better candidate for me that comes along. One thing that did strike me is when I read through these and I was like, ah, the first time. And I'm like, these are all a bunch of duds. And I went through and reread. I was like, ah, these are all a bunch of duds. But that being said, even when Kirby's doing things like a six panel grid or God help us when it happens later, the nine panel grid, and it's clear it's not something that he's very comfortable with. He managed his, his pages always look tight. I mean, you know, the, the, well, some tighter than others, but looking at page 15 here where the storm flies off, one of the things, uh, the storm, the torch flies off. One of the things that's great is you get some shots of monocle in ultra close up, you know, basically firing off the new track Ray and, it's just filled with a lot of action. You know, Kirby yeah. really just knows how to change up his shots. Everything feels kind of cramped, but but it but it it never fails to be dramatic. I love that shot of the monocle looking through his camera lens on like page 17 for example. You know. Yeah, I was going to say that I thought you were going to say the monocle looking through his camera lens on page 15. I was like, "Oh, 17's better because the the pay, the Panel three of page seventeen is is great. Yeah, it really is. I, I I liked I liked both of those, but yeah, you see seventeen and you're just like, wow. So so uh, to to sum up the plot for the remainder of this issue. Yeah. Uh, after attacking Reed and Sue, after Ben holds up the building, which by the way goes nowhere in the plot. Like mm-hmm. that's that is literally a three page interlude that that exists for no reason. Um, Crystal is essentially kidnapped from the Baxter building. Johnny goes out to discover her. He is attacked by the monocle, although he doesn't realize it. Realizes, oh shit, I'm supposed to be at the United Nations defending people. Guess who is at the United Nations? The monocle. Yes. Just when he was about to fire his new track ray, he, uh, it explodes. His camera explodes in his hands because Reed's motherfucking smarter than anyone in the world, Richards, That's has right. worked it out, has worked out what the weapon was, created a weapon that reverses the polarity of the weapon that he's never discovered and used it on the monocle. The monocle then decides, I'm just going to use a gun. I'm going to try and shoot Mr. Fantastic. That, unsurprisingly, doesn't work out that well. He is then wrestled by the invisible girl and tries to escape uh, using a jetpack. He jumps out a window and tries to escape on a jetpack. His jetpack is destroyed by the Human Torch. And in the art... He falls to his death. Clearly. I mean, one of the things that is great, like you said, this this really starts the the process of what the fuck Jack Kirby. Like, Kirby, literally, there are seven pa- panels on page 20. It is clear. You can see Kirby lose interest after panel three. Like, the last four panels of the page. He's he's basically, and it's definitely one of those things, Kirby has decided, when thank God this is something that he changes up later when he leaves Marvel and goes to DC, but this whole, like, the three coda panels at the bottom of the last page for his done-in-ones, where people say things, it literally does look as if... Um, the dude falls to his death, and I mean, it—it it is impressively unclear storytelling. Yeah. And, and Stan really does earn his keep here. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, because I'm not. Yeah. It's not just because you could have even the four, first four panels, because the third panel on the page is yeah. the monocle falling to his death. The fourth panel is this thing with his arms outstretched. That's right. But you don't see the monocle again after that third panel. Yeah. And 
interestingly enough, you don't see the thing catching him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You cut from the thing with his arms outstretched to a close-up of the thing, still looking up. Yeah. And then it cuts to Reed and Sue looking at the broken window. Mm-hmm. For two panels. Yeah, well... It's- to very, very strange. Out the panels and then to one another, you know, which is smiling again, as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you can almost imagine being like, "Ah, that Russian." Oh, nothing turns me on like watching a super spy fall to his death. Let's do it. Yeah, it's it's and again an amazingly rushed uh, climax. Yeah, yeah, yeah Johnny yeah. destroying the jetpack, the guy falling to his death, and being caught off panel by the thing. And the three-panel quota all happen on one page. Yeah. Super, super quickly, super unconvincingly. So kind of kind of a bummer. Uh, should we just jump on to 96? Or... Yeah. No, let's well, jump on let's, to let's, let's, yeah. It's 50 minutes, Jeff. Come on. We're doing it. I know. I was helping, I thought. Okay. So FF96, what I would call the mad thinker and his androids of death, but Graham would call, how can the FF survive when they must battle themselves, the mad no, thinker? themselves? Oh, right. Sorry. Oh, my God. Even when I'm trying to... Right. Also, to be fair, I would call this the mad thinker and his androids of death as well. Oh, my God. It's anyway. Not, it's not a run-on sentence. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay, fine. And- um, bad news for everyone who loves the art team because Joseph it's gone for the next few issues. Yes. We're back to Frankie. Uh, what did we say? Giacoa? I went with. Um, and if you thought the last issue was sloppy and kind of disappointing, just wait. <laughs> just, just wait. Uh, we're back to the Mad Thinker. He's got some awesome androids, in particular the same androids of death who are duplicates of the Fantastic Four with the Fantastic Four's powers. That's right. Well, yes. Just saying, if the Fanta- if you were the Mad Thinker, right, mm-hmm. and you were, for example, at Thinking, mm-hmm. and you could build robot duplicates of the Fantastic Four with the Fantastic Four's powers, yep. would you use them to fight the Fantastic Four, or would you do almost anything else with them considering they have amazing powers. Well, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it it is as is pointed out, and I apologize for spoiling this issue like eight minutes in advance, but the the fact is, as Reed points out later, why would you take creatures that have the exact same powers and put them against people who have had more experience in training with those powers and expect it to turn out well? Like, for that matter... Why don't you just sit there and make, if you can make these four duplicates and they're androids, and part of the great things about androids is you can just, you know, assembly line the shit out of them. Why not make 400 of these motherfuckers and just have them? There's apparently some funding problems for the Mad Thinker that prevents him from doing that. But um, if he could use his Fantastic Four robots to rob a bank. Right. Didn't think of that, did you, Mad Thinker? Yeah, he's it's it's it, he should be called the Think Matter if you think about it, because I feel like the Mad Thinker puts a little too much emphasis on the thinking and not nearly enough on the matting, which is the part that he really does seem to excel at. Uh, I will point out uh, for those people who are wondering, hmm. Fantastic Four duplicates. Will Jeff mention his theory that Kirby is once again drawing on uh, replacement anxiety? 
yes and no, because clearly considering he's about to jump in like five issues, there's something a little more interesting possibly going on here than just sort of the traditional shit, I'm going to get replaced by soulless duplicates. Uh, There's something that is just a little bit more... Mm, uh, I don't know how to put it. Like, I, I, it, it's not really, it's something that Kirby is not necessarily anxious about. This issue, I think, is fascinating because as it proceeds and we see the Fantastic Four more or less taken out one by one convincingly and satisfactorily and even right down to the last person there's sort of a weird nothing ever really seems to be in doubt you know yes yes there it's the again with the very lazy weird plotting mm-hmm. uh the fact that they all get taken out in order and the final one is mr fantastic who is the prime target he is given android a don't yeah, forget that's right um uh, but he of course defeats his android duplicate mm-hmm. even though for no reason whatsoever, he talks just like him. <laughs> I love that. In a seat where no one else is around, the title's to live I'll leave him there to be picked up later. As yeah. for me, I'll return to home base. Why, who are you saying that to? Right, exactly. What? Reed, why are you talking like what, that? In what case, is going on? What? Who? Yeah. 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 But he, he is... I feel like Kirby is playing to Stan's favorite and his favorite because Reed then goes back to the Baxter building, is met by the Mad Thinker and the other duplicates, mm-hmm. only to go into a spare room and find Ben asleep. That's right. That's right. Which is just wacky ass plotting. Yeah. Like really, really, really strange, lazy plotting. Yes. Because you could even maybe be like, okay, so the thing, because. Well, okay, Let, let's, I'm going to jump to the more or less linear quick recapping. We get a, a very interesting opening page uh, and second page where the Yancey Street gang have sent a, a muscles galore in six easy lessons to Ben while Reed and Sue decide to go out and shop their little hearts out, you know, uh, in Sue's case so that she can ignore the fact that she uh, is separated from her child for no real discernible reason. Ben, interestingly enough, looks at the book, says, so this book can teach you how to develop your muscles, huh? Maybe I ought to read it someday when I get the time. And basically holds the book in one hand, crushes it into dust, and drops it, which, weirdly enough, again, out of all the we have seen, this is this is issue 96, We've just about seen 90 of these sort of opening scene uh, shtick pages from Lee and Kirby. And to me, I was fascinated. This one doesn't even come close to landing in a way. It really has that feeling of like, why is he destroying the book? He doesn't even really seem especially annoyed or offended. Um, yeah, he's destroying the book because that's what he does, because it's the shtick page. Exactly. And there is a part where the shtick has triumphed overall. Uh, I sort of liked in page three where Johnny Storm apparently shows up talking like Johnny Storm, saying like, hey, that's real groovy, blue eyes, but what do you do for an encore? And then proceeds to talk more strangely from panel to panel, saying, interesting, that is exactly what he predicted you would say. And then 
And now, since it is exactly 134, I must render you unconscious with a heat-powered stun blast. I sort of like the way that between Kirby's, the indifferent posture, confident and indifferent posture with which um, Johnny Storm, the android Johnny Storm is given uh, by Kirby, and also the strange transition to sounding like Johnny Storm that we know to not Johnny Storm. Like, I was kind of like, man... Think how nice this would have been if it had been sort of more of an actual invasion of the body snatchers, where you didn't necessarily know. Because let's face it, by page four, the game is up. You know that Johnny is an android duplicate. He's communicating with the Mad Thinker. And probably my favorite part of the entire issue is the fact that the android Johnny Storm calls it, calls the android Thinker on a walkie-talkie going, Android to Thinker, do you receive me, Thinker? And the mad thinker is says, of course I receive you. I knew you would contact me at this precise second. And I'm like, how defensive and insecure is the mad thinker that he actually... He's amazingly defensive and um, Just stunning. Oh, I knew you were going to do that. Well, yes, you told me to. Yes, I know I told you. Like, I'm just, what the <laughs> fuck? Mad Thinker is like the greatest passive-progressive villain in comics. He really is amazing. I knew you were going to do that. Well, no, I knew you knew I was going to say when you said that. So uh, maybe because he sort of looks like uh, fat, angry Beethoven, um, I he, he is a very insecure uh, supervillain. I really wish you could imagine if Kirby on page five had gotten a chance to really go to town because there is some awesome Kirby tech in the background on panel I, I, two. And it's, it feels super rushed in a way that in previous yeah. issues, like that would be a full page spread or something. Yeah. You know, that, he would show off the lab. Yes. The lab, or even I'd love when duplicate Reed and duplicate Sue walk out of a psychedelic lava lamp room. It is, it's awesome. It's really Kirby, like being just at the cusp of, taking all the stuff that Steranko has stolen from him and, and stealing it back. But he just unfortunately doesn't have time. So he more or less passively, aggressively dispatches duplicate Reed and duplicate Sue to take out the, the real Reed and Sue. And again, uh, one of my regrets is on page seven, you have a panel where Sue is walking into a department store and in the women's section, uh, she is in the background with mannequins in the foreground and we assume real women in the midground. And it's, it's kind of, it's a lovely disquieting potential image, but Kirby, unlike other issues where he could maybe go to town on that sort of thing, it's just super quick. Oh, and again, I adore on page seven, there's a great panel where after robot Sue has gassed, uh, the real Sue, because you know that's that's her power. She chloroforms her. Chloroform gas. It's the same concept. There's a great panel of the two of them that almost looks like the sort of thing that Keith Giffen would go on to draw twenty years later. In that you've got two figures in the panel. They're both cut off. It's just abstract. It's basically it's very very abstract, isn't it? It's yeah. the strangest panel. Yeah, it's just uh, it's it's one of those things that if it had been a. Uh, a film frame in a movie, Sean Witzke would have screenshot it and put it on his Tumblr. Really, really good stuff. But... <laughs> there, there's some very weird mm -hmm. uh, 
panels in this in general. When you see read on page eight, yeah, uh, the fourth panel of page eight is super super strange mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because read is in shade in a dark alley, and you're seeing, I mean, what coded admittedly but not subtly coded are two heavies in the foreground. Yeah, well, it's robot read. Let's keep that in mind. It is a little confusing. Uh, but... Yeah, it's true. Yeah, but no, no. Because of course these are uh, androids who can think. Mm-hmm. Yes, that again, strange. The definition of what an android is in this issue becomes so fuzzy, uh, which I'll complain but, oh, about in a few pages. Not, but... not as fuzzy as it does in issue one hundred. Oh, issue one hundred is, is a disastrous mess. And the thing that I think is amazing, which I think is fascinating, which I will just mention this now one of the great things about 96 is it is a it is a pretty stinky issue on its own when you read issue 100 you realize that issue 96 and issue 100 which have only occurred four issues apart utterly more or less contradict each other in just about every way possible oh there's so many problems with issue 100 yeah Uh, we'll get there soon um, wait, where were we on the, on the I, pages eight or nine? I think basically what happens is, uh, thanks to the mad thinkers, diabolical plan Reed's rented car breaks down at precisely the corner in time that, uh, the thinker predicted. And so, uh, Android Reed Richards with the powers of the real Reed Richards, um, you know, uses his stretchy form to jump him, ambush him, beat him up. And seemingly defeat him because, as Graham points out on page 10, we see a Reed Richards stand up, announce the time, and says, as for me, I'll return to home base. Every single indication being that the real Reed Richards has been defeated. Uh, And yet, on page 11, uh, no sooner than Fat Beethoven has begun gloating uh, and saying that total victory is his that Reed Richards punches him and then of course Reed Richards real power to basically patronize anyone and everyone in the room at the top of page 12 says though your pseudo android couldn't could stretch like me you couldn't give him my skill my knowledge of tactics you couldn't program him to beat me and now that your timetable's upset anything can happen and it's uh basically does for at least a few panels where uh, it's Reed versus the android rest of the FF, including Sue. Android Sue apparently doesn't know that she has superpowers unless she Which thinks her superpowers. Which is hilarious, isn't it? Yeah, it's just so great. Android is just, what if I wave this candlestick around? Exactly. I am going to KO him by punching him in the arm with this candlestick. It's not the way it works, Android we, Sue. We have previously also made fun of really weird Kirby anatomy. Yes. Panel 4... On page 12. Mm-hmm. Why is Reed's hand so big? Yeah. It's I... behind Sue's arm. Well, and you know... it seems to be roughly the size of Sue's arm. He's stretching it out or up because, I don't know, it's a big doorknob. It's a small doorknob. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Let's face it. Just the fact that he gr- goes for the door and then Sue basically starts trying to brain his arm with a candlestick, and he has to move his arm about while still holding onto the door, stretching through the door, and then closing the door. It just all seems like um, it, it's Kirby dynamicism, but 
But it, it's nonsensical. And also yeah. then, he just manages to wake the thing up. Yeah, basically. Battle wouldn't have woken the thing up anyway. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. He manages to wake the wake thing up by saying, Ben, Ben, snap out of it, old friend. Right. Right. That's, that. well, to be fair, I that's how I wake Kate up every morning. Yes, that's how I'm going to start wake, waking up Edie, actually. Snap out of it, old friend. Yeah, that's right. Like, what are you saying? What? I think I, think uh, I probably uh, will, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the, the combined forces of Reed and Ben, or as I put it before, Stan's favourite and Jack's favourite, manages to take down the fake FF and the Mad Thinker uh, to the point where the Mad Thinker just takes them to fascinatingly his weirdly staffed by soldiers base who they defeat very quickly uh, and his tubes of the real sue and johnny well it so there's sort of a weird if i'm understanding things correctly uh first off we have to me the sequence where again what does an android mean if ben is unwilling to actually can't hit a female, even if she is a crummy android. Yes, even though the android Sue Storm is holding a gun, and the drawing makes it look like Ben's not going to be able to reach her in time, so he has to do something else. Stan repositions it as the idea... I mean, seriously, it's like saying, like, ah, ah, it's a, f- it's a refrigerator on a rampage, but it's a female refrigerator, so I can't hit it. I'm just like... What are you even saying there? I mean, I know, like you said, Stan's got a lot on his plate that he's trying to cover for here. But that struck me as um, pretty ridiculous sauce. Not just weak sauce, ridiculous sauce. Anyway, the Mad Thinker's like, haha, I've got the other two members of the FF hidden. You're never going to be able to find them. I hold the upper hand. And Reed's like, wait a minute. How the hell did he even get in the Baxter building anyway? Oh, he must have built a secret elevator in uh, elevator shaft in here while we were in Europe battling Doctor Doom. I love that they specifically give it that time frame as well. Yeah, I really do. I was like... Oh, well, okay, sure. And then, as Reed, as uh, Reed, oh, I was going to call you Reed, as Graham points out, you go downstairs, there's an endless army of android people, but very sensibly without any superpowers whatsoever, because once you can do that, let's face it, you really just, you don't want to overplay your hand. If you're the mad thinker, why over-egg that pudding? Just make hundreds and hundreds of androids who basically look like soldiers that Ben can turn around and throw fat Beethoven like he's an enormous fastball right through the pile of troops, knocking them all down, and, let's face it, probably killing the Mad Thinker, although he comes back. So, um, fortunately, true love conquers all, as once again, uh, Reed, uh, seeing the sleeping Sue, says, perhaps a kiss will speed the process the way it happens in a fairy tale. And it ends with the two of them kissing, which apparently seems to be what Kirby has learned. As long as Reed gets to second base, Stanley will not complain about an ending. So, And again, let's talk about how rushed this final page is. In the final page, yes. they discover the tubes. Yes. There's the kiss and they wake up. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Wacky ass. The, the, the pacing in these... And this one didn't even have the good art to sort of distract. Uh, Jaco is an okay inker. Yes. Uh, He really is very heavy on the blacks. There's so much in this issue where you feel that Sinnott would have at least given the the art some more space to breathe. Oh, I, you know, it's, isn't it 
fascinating. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but isn't it fascinating how, like, for me, the instant I opened the page before I even read the credit box, I was like, oh, Sinnott's not on this. And oh, yeah, you can tell. Mm-hmm. Just right out of the, the, the definitely, if nothing else, there's all the other things that Sinnott can do that he can do very well. But he knows how to ink Jack Kirby's pencils on Ben Grimm in a way that Giacoa, who's who's popped up several times throughout these issues, you know, the entirety of the Fantastic Four, he still can't quite get it down. His like thing is passable, but he's like, hmm. He he definitely leaves a little more fidelity, I feel, to the faces than Senate might. Yes. But yes. But by the same token, he just doesn't know what to emphasize in a way that Senate seems to have really learned. But uh, yeah, I would have to say in an in an issue where one of the next to last images is Reed Richards checking his watch, that is probably the most accurate way to sum up the issue. You know? Um, yeah, it's it's just and and it's only downhill from here, people. Oh yeah, because um, Fantastic Four issue ninety seven. The Fabulous FF find maddening mystery when they meet the monster from the Lost Lagoon. What's that you say? The monster from the Lost Lagoon sounds entirely derivative. Oh, you ain't seen nothing yet, people. <laughs> um, again, uh, Giacoa is on inks. But yes. he's actually, I would say this is his strongest issue on inks. I, I think that's probably true. There's some, there is, again, some smattering of some really gorgeous illustrations the there's not nearly as many full page spreads as you've been getting in Kirby issues leading up to this. The one that he does, even though it is of an entirely derivative character, is kind of striking. And I think a lot of that is the extent to which Giacoa is able to uh, assist and aid. I do love, and I say this as a long-term uh, fan of Kirby's Commandy, the fact that, that Jack Kirby can draw many things, still can't figure out how to draw a dolphin, either now or in Commandy, <laughs> and which is made amazingly transparently clear on the first two pages of this issue. The, the I, first page in particular, the coloring, uh, if you're reading the scans in particular, mm-hmm. uh, makes the <laughs> Not the dolphin in the foreground, but the dolphin behind that, sort of the dolphin in the center of the page. Looks like he has an almost cartoonish, very serious eye. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is kind of hilarious. Um, One thing I think Giacoa's inks really do here is I think Kirby and Giacoa's water is amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love the way they visualize water in this issue. Yeah, Uh, because it's almost Kirby Crackle. Exactly. It's like Kirby Crackle, and yet it's used to the, just these like really great purposes. And I and I have to say that that for those for those playing at home, uh, having looked at both of them on like in Marvel Unlimited and uh, in the scans, I actually think that that whoever did the coloring and recoloring for the Marvel Unlimited jobs, which were you know, probably the what ended up being the recolored masterworks or whatever does a really good job of interpretation, but is completely, and you'll pardon the pun, at sea when it comes to recapturing an almost abstract sense of water that Lee and G, uh, that Kirby and Giacoa do on page two and three. The the top panel on on uh, page two, where it's like the F the Fantastic Three in their little. Dinko scooter cutting along what some relatively choppy surf makes almost no sense in the Marvel Unlimited recolored scan. And here, like you said, 
is pretty vibrant and, and kind of only builds to that uh, in pages three and four, which is... The, the top panel on page four in particular. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, the water in there is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's really a very it's it's literally a vital substance and and um has it's it's just great great art. Uh which is interesting cuz let's face it right off the bat the whole issue is you can tell is going to be a, 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 tr- a an express train to mess town. It is so in the previous episode of Baxter Building, we talked about how Kirby managed to get four issues out of the Star Trek episode, A Piece of the Action. Yeah. This is Kirby really struggling to get one issue out of The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Well, I am going, let's give him a certain amount of credit. I love The Creature from the Black Lagoon. It's clear that, that Kirby's taking the design here. Part of what he's trying to do uh, is fake us out. The first. Five to six pages uh, are built around the motifs that made the creature from the Black Lagoon quote-unquote work. And then Kirby tries to take that and turn the story around on its head. Part of the problem is he he's not very clear on where he's going with it or how he's doing it. And he is not helped at all by Stan, who is confused and second-guessing him. One of the things that's amazing is is that the story opens with them uh, investigating all the ships that have gone down in Lost Lagoon. Reed believes so many that it is impossible for it to be accidental. And when the Navy heard that they were vacationing there and asked him to investigate, he couldn't refuse. Now, the thing that I think is amazing is, is that Johnny Storm continues to basically pester Reed for four pages with all the possibilities as to who this mysterious sea monster figure might be, being like, is it the Submariner? Maybe it's Triton from the Inhumans. And I understand what Lee is doing, but what he's doing is also more or less underlining how trivial a character we're about to encounter actually yeah. is. Yes. Um. And because we have seen more important characters who do exactly the same thing. Exactly. Exactly. Ones who tie into the mythos. And although I think Lee is kind of like, well, clearly we would have these people think of it. It's not. It just it just undercuts considering all the other places where he just gives up. That, that should have been one as well. Plus, you get some amazing things where, um, like, for example, Johnny suggests, like, maybe a whale caused all the sinkings and reed says no too many witnesses told of seeing a monster in human form this is a great panel because just two panels before you actually have johnny saying i thought i saw a figure clinging to the whale but it must have been my imagination instead of reed saying no that wasn't your imagination he's like yes it was your imagination but a whale no we people have actually seen a figure i mean not like you just did that was clearly imagination, but people generally, I sort of, again, I wish that I could say that this, this con- conception of Reed Richards, who is much more excited about telling people than they're wrong than helping them be right is out of character for Reed Richards as we've come to know him, these 90 some odd issues, but it's not, it's not at all. No, not, not at all. Um, shooting through this super, super quickly. Yeah. Um, Short version is, there is a creature in Lost Lagoon, everyone. He is 
sinking ships to try and get equipment for. You don't find this out until the issue's end, but I'm just going to jump ahead. Yeah, you might uh, as well. Build his spaceship because he's an alien and he's trying to get home. Yeah. What is wonderful about this, wonderful, is that the creature has a special chemical that turns him into a person. Mm-hmm. And he looks human. He takes the 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 chemical. He looks human. He is talking. Yes. On page seven and eight. He's talking as he explains to the reader what is going on. That yeah. he's saying it out loud. It's non-Thopolins. He's yeah. actually talking before that as well. Yes. Um, he then shows up. Hilariously seems to show up in SeaWorld. Yes. Uh, performs with dolphins. Yes. What seems to be a choreographed routine that he has down and so do the dolphins. Yes. He's clearly the mysterious trainer for this SeaWorld area that makes the animals do whatever he wants. And apparently is hired and getting paid for this by SeaWorld, despite the fact that he does not communicate at all verbally, despite Even being able to. Even though we know to. he can. Well, unbelievable. Great stuff. But, and, then, yeah. but then the Fantastic Four hire him yes. to be a guide to the waters. Even though, again, he's not spoken to them. And they point out this yes. repeatedly in dialogue. Lee continually points this out. Our silent friend here is going to serve as guide. And sure enough, two panels later, you see him serving as guide by literally pointing to something on a map. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's pointing on a map, and and I love how at the one point on that on that where he's pointing to it on page twelve where they're in the special lagoon, uh, they're back in the lost lagoon. They're in their special little mini sub, and they're piloting through into the deepest caves in the area. And Johnny asks, "How does he know his way down here? Around here, no one can swim this far down." Reed says, right, I'd like to hear your answer to Johnny's question. To a person that has been mute in their presence the entire time. He's not asking him to answer. He's just saying, I'd like to hear your answer. Yeah, right. I, I wish you could speak so I could hear your answer. I don't think he's saying it quite like that. He, it's classic. Anyway, it's an amazing story because then the uh, silent guide more or less punches his way out of the <laughs> sub. Whatsoever. He punches his way through a wall. Yeah. Just maybe so that he doesn't have to deal with being harangued by Reed Richards. I can't blame him. The sub uh, ends up like being stuck in a, in a bog. And only once again, Reed Richards fast thinking with a spear gun that, that of course is has a line tied to it and uh the fancy uh breath holding powers of ben Grimm allow them to escape into the air of the, the network of underground caves and they can encounter the quote-unquote monster um who is now back to looking like a monster exactly he he reveals his spaceship they essentially let him go yeah the, the end of the issue the most interesting thing about this is page 19. Yes. You see the uh, the monster's mate, mm-hmm. and it's Marina from Alpha Flight. Yes. I am so glad you mentioned that, because I'm I, like... I'm, I'm not being sarcastic. I think it's genuinely Marina from Alpha Flight. I kind of want to go and reread Alpha Flight now, because you know this is something that John Byrne would have referenced. Oh, well, that's it. I mean, when you see Marina pop up in later issues of The Avengers, as we did through our reread, and she went through a period of turning bestial, her face would go kind of blank and jagged toothy in a way that is very much like this monster from the Lost Lagoon. So actually, there's two amazing uh, pieces of continuity here 
uh, issue one is the fact that, yes, apparently John Byrne took the design for Marina from here and apparently her origin, and that amazes me, and B, three issues from now, we will see a letter of praise from J.M. Dematius saying that this was the best issue ever because of the philosophizing of Reed Richards here, who talks about how, think how easy it is to misunderstand when we cannot communicate. Think how Ben attacked him with no provocation. Now... Let's ignore the fact... Did Ben attack him with no provocation? Because let's remember, he did fucking destroy the submarine. And trap them and leave them to die. Like, as miscommunication signals go, that's pretty strong. So, A, I of course love the continual reference of Stan... Stan Reed saying that it's Ben Jack's fault, as he frequently does throughout these issues, uh, which is not for long. Well, because exactly the passive aggressive train is ending mighty soon, true believers. But also just the fact that in order to be able to make some sort of point, some greater point about human fallibility and misjudging a book without looking at its monstrous lagoon dwelling cover or wherever he's going with it. It literally is contradicted by the events of the episode where the monster from the lost lagoon is kind of a shit. I mean, you find out justifiably maybe at the end, but basically a big old turd. So kind of a shit. I think that's where we should leave that issue. <laughs> really, it's not going to get better from there. Fantastic Four 98. Mm, mystery mystery on, on the moon. moon. Yeah. That's, if nothing uh, else, Joe Sinnott's back. Oh, yeah. It's great. And right off the bat, again, you you the, the, the inking box, the credit box is at the bottom of the page, but by the time you get there, you know that Sinnott's back. Just by looking at Sue's face, just by looking at the 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 really just great judicious applications of of the blacks to Reed's face and but also the care he takes in the machinery. Yes, and that what I was going to say. Jacob did not do at all. So key, so key. Senate really understands the machinery is important to Kirby. It's important to him, and so consequently, the splash page where Reed is looking at a strange alien message. And just sort of maybe happens to guess that it's the Cree, um, really does have a great moment of, to me, alien creepiness because that alien alphabet is so lovingly, um, although quickly delineated by Kirby and Senate, it has it has weight to it. You know? Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, the time, July 1969. The place, the penthouse headquarters of the Fantastic Four. The prospect, adventure, almost <laughs> beyond belief. <laughs> that's that's the uh, the caption the end. Now I could be wrong, Jeff. Yes, but I want to say this issue came out in 1970. It did. It did. It came uh, out uh, uh, May of that, 1970, I think. That's yeah. why I say I'm July 1969. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. Here's the thing, listeners. The time in July 1969. The issue is called Mystery on the Moon. What do you think it's about? That's right, the moon landing. The moon landing is a really fucking strange thing in this story. Yeah. Because it's being treated as basically as important as it was in the real world. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is the FF and the Red Ghost have been to the moon. Yes. And not even secretly. They came back and got an enormous parade back in like FF number issue 14, I want to say. Yes. You know? 
It's so, the weirdest thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's so strange to essentially a year after this happens. Yeah. In in the real world, try and contextualize it in a fantastic, no pun intended, world where it's old news. It's old news by quite some time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the strangest hook to hang this issue around. I, and I have to say, although I could be wrong, I, I, out of all the many weird mistaken things that have happened about it, and, and you know, I'm perfectly willing to own up to the fact that uh, because I lay so much of the credit for for things at Kirby's door, I can't help but feel that some of the mistakes made here clearly are also Kirby's as well. Oh, um, there's there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of problems uh, just in terms of dialogue. But I, I, Lee yeah. Lee even in a later letter column cops to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Although at that point, and this is where you and I could be wrong. I sort of suspect that that Roy Thomas is writing the letters columns at that point. There's just something passive aggressive slash nitpicky enough that I'm like, oh yeah, that's the Roy Thomas I know. Uh, but I do feel that there's there's a wonderful Rorschach test quality to the Baxter Building, in which we discover just who you don't like from the Marvel bullpen. Yeah, except I do really like Roy Thomas. I I I honestly genuinely do. I just I'm also aware between this and reading a a bunch of other stuff that he did via Marvel Unlimited over the last year. I'm like, yeah, I like Roy Thomas. I'm like, but there is a guy who is. Yeah, nitpicky and and passive aggressive. The thing that's great about Stan is when Stan's called on his shit on issues, he always does a kind of like, ah, what are you gonna do? You can't please everyone, or can you? Here's a survey. You know, like he's he's always dancing fast, and for the most part, does not take anything personally, even when he's being criticized and called out by name. So I think it's. Now, admittedly, who knows? Maybe it really is Lee, and maybe Lee's getting pretty defensive because he's under a ton of pressure. But looking at how much of the bullpen bulletins and just about everything is being handled, I feel, by, like, Roy Thomas, the letters where he's actually replying to people seem ridiculously persnickety. Uh, That being said, there's a way in which I feel that Kirby, I think, wanted to do something that... This almost feels like more of a hundredth issue anniversary to me than what we get for issue a hundred, you know? Which is very possible because we know from the just from the very existence that there is a quote unquote lost issue mm. of Fantastic Four with Kirby Art on it. Mm-hmm. Um and Kirby's final issue is part one of a two parter and the lost issue is not part two. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Uh we know that it's possible that this was initially intended to run a later issue. This could have been initially yeah. at a hundredth issue and then they decided it wasn't big enough and bumped it back. Right. Um, I want to very quickly, before we move off pages two and three, talk about the wonderful headlines that the newspaper has. Yes. <laughs> because they're trying to get exposition over that they're talking about the moon landing. Yeah. So the he- headlines for the newspaper are Apollo, go! Sea of Tranquility, target for moonwalk! Moonwalk! Sea of Tranquility! Yes. Well, and I do love that because, of course, the one word that Reed can decipher from the Cree ticker tape is the word tranquility, which he holds up on uh, panel three. And then on uh, panel five, 
you've got in the almost the exact same placement right below it, the Sea of Tranquility reference. So it's one of those great little moments of Kirby's uh, visual storytelling. And one of those things that Kirby is telling you is maybe he doesn't have an ear for newspaper headlines, but he is also telling you the linkage between tranquility and Sea of Tranquility, and especially the idea that, that Reed can't get it in its right under his nose. Yeah, I mean it's right there. the placement yeah. of the, the of Reed over that over the newspaper, it it literally is right under his nose, is kinda great. I mean it's you know, it's one of those simple pleasures, you know. Um And in these issues you have to take the simple pleasures where you can find Oh them. man, you, you have to because there's so many simple and not so simple displeasures that you've got. Oy, so the plot of this issue is the Apollo mission is about to take off. Yes. The Cree, there is a Cree sentry on Earth who has been tasked with essentially stopping the humans from landing on Earth. On, on the moon, rather. Okay, admittedly, his mission is very, very vague. It's not so much to, as far as I can tell, because this, it, it is more or less to make sure to sabotage the mission. Because at no point is everything that the Cree sentry doing in this issue stopping the Apollo. F- 13 that, from landing true. on the moon okay well, maybe stopping them from taking off again uh, yeah that that basically there is a a un, that there is a cosmic cloud of indescribableness that lee does an impressive job of not even bothering to describe with the idea that being that it is about to quote unquote at one point i think he refers to it as waking so people who want to say that it's cthulhu trapped in the moon like knock yourself out we never find out what we do find out is thanks to the ff it is not activated so that when the astronauts land on the moon they are safe so again, well, no, no, sorry no. to quibble. It is activated, but... and then it is deactivated. Oh, okay. Re- right. Read at the end of the issue has a destruct lever that he pulls. Yes, but it is actively activated before that. That is true. Yeah. Short, short version. That's what happens, you guys. Long the... version. Oh my God, the stimulator. Oh my God, I laugh so hard at the stimulator as only this, the this... emotional adolescent that I am can. Wait, were, were you not very impressed with page six when the crease entry? Uh, raises an island that is made of, as only Kirby could draw it, like crazy rock. You know, I have to say, I was the like... The island's risen! And <laughs> now to find the simulator. You see? I'm sorry. The isle has risen! <laughs> I mean, honestly, part of me is like, that should be an awesome Kirby page, and yet I was left kind of cold by it. How about you? Uh yeah, I'm I'm going to agree with you, but it's still the one of the best pages in the issue. Yeah, but as, as we said before, Kirby is visibly checked out of these issues. Yeah, completely. Kirby, Kirby is calling this shit in in so many ways. So for one thing, in the Marvel Universe, the Apollo mission lasted a day. Yes, they they managed to land on the moon on the same day that they take off. Yeah, yeah. Which if only. Reality had had agreed. That is really there as a ticking clock for the FF, who, it should be pointed out, for the second issue in a row, is really just a Fantastic Three. That's right. Because Sue is just left to be a mother for the last two issues. Anyway, they have to go and basically undo the Kree's plan. Yes. They do that via a kind of underwhelming fight and pulling the destruct lever 
on the stimulator. The the joys of this issue, such as they are, come in the how the world is reacting to the moon mission page yes. on page eleven. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's some great Stan shtick, and it's also followed up with a panel where, uh, sorry to be so fixated, true believers, if we had more than 15 minutes per issue, I'd sound more rational about this. But the is perfectly. The stimulator functions perfectly, and as you'll see, what is great is one of the rings of the stimulator perfectly frames the sentry's crotch. Wait, I. But- you didn't say the next line, which is what makes it perfect. No, but what is the shock blast I felt? Oh, that is so grand. <laughs> oh, come on. You're no, the one no, no, no. I know. I, I'm, I'm actually embarrassed that I missed that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird issue. There are plot problems uh, galore. Uh, one of the things that's great is Stan, in the attempts to make the issue seem less boring than it does, he has the FF, like the Fantastic Three, fly to the island, and then uh, when it's pointed out that there's no place to land, Reed says, there has to be. We've only enough fuel for another few minutes. Which, what, Reed? You knew where you were going. Why wouldn't you bring enough fuel to get home? I don't understand. Yeah, exactly. Why isn't he bringing are they not going home? Yeah. And so the whole thing becomes what I think was supposed to be Kirby being like, oh, here's the FF. They're professionals. They're flying to this new island. No big deal. The torch is going to, like, use his flames to create, you know, fuse the ground and create a runway. Becomes a dramatic last-minute crash landing complete with, you know, Johnny saving them and Reed yelling, you did it, lad. You did it just to make us feel that things are happening because it's actually a few more pages until the sentry pops up and more or less gets dispatched in a relatively perfunctory two to two and a half pages, depending on how you count. So, Well, well, that's hilarious as well because Stan tries to explain that away later. Mm -hmm. Yes, he does. Uh, Because the machine, the, the stimulator, not only saps the Fantastic Four's powers, Yes. But Reed says that's why the, the sentry, uh, that's why Ben's first blow stopped him cold. Yeah. As in, like, I realized that was very easy. That was no fight. I, yeah. I should try and explain that away. Yeah, yeah. And as el- as it, explanations it's, go, it's not necessarily inelegant. It's a lot no, better it, it, than... No, it, it, it works. Mm-hmm. It works better than that was a really easy fight. Yes. What is... It apparently doesn't sap Reed's power enough to switch it off. Nor Ben's power to save him and Johnny. The strangest thing about this issue, besides the fact that they let the sentry go. Mm -hmm. The sentry just flies off and they're like, it's okay, he's done. Yes. His mission's over, he can go wherever, which is kind of wacky. The strange thing about this issue for me is that the final two panels, which is Neil Armstrong coming down the ladder and stepping on the moon and saying, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Mm Mm-hmm. Is done by a different letterer. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. It's yeah. super weird. Like, mm-hmm. was it originally different dialogue? Did, did Stan get, get it wrong? And then <laughs> was a correction? Like, it's very strange that it's, it's a different letterer. Well, you know, it is kind of, it is kind of like the, the story all fits, but it is, I don't know, there's just something that's so. Like, if you told me that those last three panels had been redrawn by Herb Trimpey, I'd be inclined to believe them almost, too, at the same time. I would hate to think that's the case, because, of course, I I feel like 
this story seems to me to very much be assuming that Kirby's plotting it, his, a very gracious way of saying like, hey, man landed on the moon, that's amazing, We're and we're going to shout it out. Like I said, it feels like a very natural 100th first issue because it feels as if part of what he's saying is it's the spirit of the Fantastic Four, you know, the same spirit that propelled these astronauts or what we're trying to catch in yeah, this, yeah. you know? Yeah. It, and, and I think that that's... Uh, to me, that's the part that's kind of emotional and resonant. Um, but of course, it's just, it's not whatever else is going on with Kirby and uh, later with Lee. Like, the whole sequence in which everyone, based, you know, in which Reed starts yelling for Ben and Ben shows up immediately and automatically is so close to being like something out of clap your hands, you know, and, and if you believe in fairies, like it's yeah, just yeah. Peter Panish enough. It's, and I mean, you know, there are areas where Kirby's indulged in magical fairy tale storytelling tips oh, yeah, yeah. in here before. And, and it's worked. In yes. A way that it's not so obvious though. Yeah, exactly. And it's very, very jarring here. Unfortunately, I wish that, I wish that it weren't, but it really is. So, yeah, a very strange issue, a very strange issue, but not nearly as strange as the, um, I don't know what to describe it, the super stalkery issue of Fantastic Four 99, uh, a.k.a. The Torch Goes Wild. Are you, are you ready to, is there something else you want to say about 98 before we get there, or? No, but what I do want to say is it's the fabulous FF must swing into action once again when The Torch Goes Wild. <laughs> Uh, which opens with just the, what can only be described as beautiful sight. Yes. Of uh, the thing <laughs> in uh, skis mm-hmm. with uh, ski poles and I, some kind of... Is, is it a baseball cap that he's wearing with green goggles on? I'm uh, not quite sure what he's got in his head. But anyway, when the thing is planning to go skiing with Alicia, as he is... Mm-hmm. Uh, what he likes to do ahead of time is strip down to his underwear, put himself some skis, put himself in a hat and some goggles, and just stare at himself in the mirror. One of the things that I find really fascinating, again, is it appears to be just a coloring error because his trunks are blue on page two. So they're just his regular trunks. But it is – you literally open the, the issue and think that you are – that Reed and Sue, who are walking in on Ben – that we too are walking on Ben in his tidy whities posing in front of a mirror with a strapped to a set of skis, which makes hey, you think that hey, Ben's got a don't, very... Don't, yeah, don't kink shame. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Whatever Ben's into is fine. Okay? That's right. He's got complicated sexual needs. Fascinatingly enough, I'm impressed that Marvel Unlimited, that they, again, this issue entirely recolored, and they left his trunks white for that splash page to still give you that. they know how special it is. Yeah. They know how it is that that Ben is a diaper man. He's a downhill skier. Wink, wink. Uh, And yeah, it's... Oh my god! Now you've made that into a terrible euphemism. No! No! I think we all know what he means by downhill skier. Uh, Anyway, his plans for a lovely skiing getaway with Alicia are ruined. Ruined, I tell you, by the fact that... Three issues after it happened, Johnny has thought, what if I go and get Crystal? That's right. 
That's right. He slipped away last night, leaving a note behind. So this story, super media res. And again, it very much feels as if someone, I can really see this one being a Lee and Kirby sort of stand saying to Jack, you know, Jack, we really need to do something with the Human Torch. Maybe something, you know, like we did the first time where, you know, Crystal and Johnny were separated and Johnny went to the great refuge to try and get her back. Some sort of thing like that. And a very burnout Jack Kirby is like, fine, let's do it. I'm going to do it in an issue and I am going to do my best to strip all the meaning from it. Because what what I actually imagined instead was that like Lee said that and Kirby literally just heard Johnny goes to the Great Refuge. (laughs) And he's like, okay, I can do that. Fine. Let's so yeah, it is some pretty speedy shit. And yet I have to say, thanks to the miracle of Kirby and Joe Sinnott, it's it's some good looking speedy shit, I think. There's some of the stuff here, um you know, for some reason, like the 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 Reed Sue and uh, Ben, in order to get Johnny back, they climb into like literally a flying saucer and fly into space. They have so many river ships that we've seen before, but suddenly, flying saucer, and uh, so that they can basically fly into a meteor shower and like, yeah, for no reason. It's so hilarious. Yeah, what's the best way to get there? What if we just go into space? Did you prepare for the meteor shower retreat? You know how we got hit by cosmic rays the first time. I'm sure the next time we go into space, you'll have prepared for something like a meteor shower. Oh, I haven't. Yes. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so stretchy, but I'm terrible in forward planning. (laughs) At one point, Sue says, Reed, what can we do? And of course, Reed says, nothing, Sue. The ship can weather it. It may hurl us off course, but... And then, of course, a meteor flies directly at the screen with Ben saying, who boy, that one's got our number on it. So there is something pretty great about the fact that, because there is time. If we had more time, and who knows, maybe as a wrap-up, I can mention all the points where Reed goes out of his way to completely diminish any sort of emotional concerns that Sue has. But this is this is probably my favorite moment, just because the next panel of the story literally proves that Reed Richards is wrong in talking out his ass. So... Uh, Johnny, in his attempt to travel, fly across the world, uh, most of which happens on page three, ends up um, pulling into a cave to sleep. But, 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 but before he does that, can we just talk about page three for a second? Sure. Johnny, first of all, flies past the Eiffel Tower, says, Paris at last, I've reached halfway mark. In the next panel, talks about pass, having just passed France. Yes, He's obviously flying very quickly. And then says, I need all my speed to outfly those NATO jets. Yeah. And the same goes for dodging these commie hunter missiles. Johnny. Yeah. Why is everyone firing at you? <laughs> I understand you're in a rush, but what the fuck are you doing that everyone's firing at you? Couldn't you at least call ahead, at least to the friendly countries? Yeah. And say, I'm going to be flying. I'm the human torch, you'll know me. I'm the guy who's flying on fire in the sky. You would think. Maybe you don't want to shoot at me. Yeah. Let, and let's just say that although that that is, again, a nonsensical page, one of the things I always appreciate about Kirby is even when he doesn't necessarily want to... There's times where he pays attention to Johnny as a character, as a powerful superhero figure, and there's times where he and Sinnott just make him an absolutely cool design element. And I feel like page three is one of those pages where in panel four, 
it's just it's just the human torch flying, but because of the creation of the lines and the flame behind him, it's you know it's an it's an incredibly dynamic panel. You know, it's kind of kind of nice. There's some really dynamic stuff here visually in a story that is um, arbitrary as all crap at Kirby, best. Kirby, Kirby and later on Simonson mm-hmm. were the best artists at considering the Human Torch's flame trail mm-hmm. as a design element. Because mm-hmm. Kirby is very good at using that. Uh, not only to show the path of the torch, mm-hmm. but to make the panels very interesting. Yeah, exactly. Panel three on page three, mm-hmm. where he's flying th- around the missiles, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is great because you see him essentially doing a figure eight around the missiles, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just it just looks wonderful. It, it looks very exciting. And, and Simonson did the same thing many many years later. But mm. in between, people were just like, "Oh, look, there's there's he went up, he went down." Right. Well, every once in a while you'll see, and I, I imagine that we will see, particularly in the uh, Rich Buckler, okay, you're paying me to ape Kirby, I'll ape Kirby. There's a lot of shots sort of like panel uh, four on page three, but the basically the torch flying right at the viewer uh, happens a lot in the post-Kirby era, I think. And it's interesting to me how much Kirby really used the opposite approach to create a lot of tension and dynamicism when, when Johnny's flying. So, mm-hmm. so let's, 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 let, let's move on. Yes. Uh, is it, you, you called this a super stalker issue and it totally is. Johnny kind of finds a great refuge by mistake. Yes. Uh, it just happens to be connected to the cave. He, he decides to sleep in, but he says, even though she went of her own free will to rejoin her inhuman family, we belong to each other, and no one will ever keep us apart. No one. While trying to fucking destroy the Great Refuge. Yeah. Can we talk about how kind of terrifying that is? Yes. Yeah, it really is. There is something here, and, I, and I'm fascinated because I really... Sometimes you can see the schism between what... Kirby is trying to do uh, and what Lee is trying to do and see how there's problems that create from it. It it really is. Lee, I feel, is following the text that is being laid down on the page. You see Johnny fly through the Great Refuge, you know, setting things on fire, blasting things. He breaks into the courtroom to confront the Inhumans when he on, on, on page ten, the mm-hmm. final panel on page ten, when he's breaking in, he looks mad as hell. Yes, yeah, um, and you you see a situation in which you know he he tries to take on the Inhumans, uh, bursts into flame, threatens Medusa with a handful of flame, where she on page thirteen she basically is like, "We've been lenient with you till now, but you've gone too far." swings off we cut back to the ff <coughs> the f3 i should say um getting their uh ship repaired and hanging out with a bunch of awesome looking sherpa types um relaunching into the air in a way that really is so complicated uh again you feel kirby is doing some incredibly dynamic vamping and then it is back to 
the torch confronting crystal and saying like i know black bolt tricked you into siding with them but and she says black bolt tricked me oh you poor blind fool at which point the torch really does go wild and says then i was wrong you wanted to come you wanted to leave me i don't mean anything to you i never did you're right sister i'm a fool and crystal loses his her temper and he goes on to flip out even worse you yes. know it's it's amazing yeah. he is he is crazily toxic in this issue yeah and it's fascinating because it is a huge transition to the way uh i mean i because you you've also not got to the point where with ff catch up with him he then attacks the fantastic four yes well you've got yeah you've got two scenes you've got an amazing scene where he flies up to the to above the great refuge and begins crafting an enormous fireball as if to consume the entire city, despite how Lee is trying to change it in the dialogue. The FF stop his plans and break up the fireball. He gets so pissed. He literally hurls a fireball at them, which Sue manages to stop with the force field, which leads to one of those great points where she's like, Johnny, if not for my force field, you might have hurt your own partners. At which point, Reed Richards, the world's most supportive husband, says, no, he wouldn't, Sue. That was only meant to scare us. <laughs> but Sue does at least give Johnny the talking to that he deserves. Yes. And this is... Like a spoiled yes. child willing to harm anyone who gets in your way. And he says, okay, sis, you made your point. She did, but still, Johnny, you're not off the hook because you said that. Yes, I mean, it sounds kind of, it's interesting how grudging it feels. Like, Lee tries to craft it as if he really has got his point. And let's face it, it's page 19. You have one page to essentially reconcile the young lovers. And you do get some people saying to explaining to uh johnny that the reason why crystal left was so that she could help cure black bolt who had been stricken during a radiation experience johnny like a you know feeling like a bit more like a shit heel says i didn't even give anyone a chance to explain and crystal says you say you love me johnny but love must have compassion and understanding to which johnny once again raises the flags by saying it's hard to be understanding when your girl is a million miles away so the world's uneasiest reconciliation thanks to ben uh basically <laughs> saying just live together yeah, which is come on make up i got a ski trip to hit uh cuz i'm a downhill skier wink wink leaving us in a situation where I'm like, I'm distinctly uncomfortable with Johnny Storm now. And it's fascinating because Johnny, in many ways, throughout the scope of, you know, the 98 issues that we've read, occasionally he's a hothead. He's not nearly as much of a hothead as Ben is. There's many times in which he is in combat, one of the, can be one of the better uh, tacticians on the team and actually do things like take out the frightful four by themselves. He's more mature for his age than, you know, he was incredibly popular in the earlier issues, as you pointed out, of the Fantastic Four, because he was a teen superhero that was not treated like a sidekick. He was, in in, in certain scenes, the most competent member of the team. You know, apart from Reed's powers to basically deus es machina anything. Um, and I'm fascinated here as to what's going on. Now, I, I always felt that 
maybe in the second half of the FF, even, I kind of felt that maybe Kirby was uncomfortable with drawing Johnny, that he was very aware that the Human Torch was not his creation, which, I mean, he was always aware of. And I, I think that Kirby, that is not something that Kirby, I feel Kirby would actually rather create characters of his own than draw characters created by other people. Um, and yet here he is on the FF having to draw and redraw, um, you know, the Human Torch and the Submariner, both of whom were created by other uh, creators and not treated well by Marvel in the long run. So I don't know what's going on here. Maybe it's just Kirby trying to like tell a zip dazzler of a story and not paying attention to the moral repercussions of Johnny's actions. But you walk out like if Johnny way back when, when we were talking about, you know, um, two issues in the fifties where I felt like first Ben and then Johnny ended up seeming like the villains of their issues. This story really trumps that in terms oh, yeah, of Johnny Johnny's is behavior. outright the bad guy in this issue. Yeah. And, and, and the fact that he doesn't, he really doesn't get any sort of confidence for it. No. Like no. Sue gets one panel of calling him a spoiled child and that's it. Then everyone else is like, we're going to try and explain to make you feel better. As opposed to listen, you little psychopath. Yeah, seriously, that tr- basically threaten bringing genocide onto your girlfriend's race just because she moved away from you for an emergency of her own free will is a super dick move. Super dick move. So yeah, um, ninety nine is a very disquieting story, and I think that's kind of the the problem that as we move into these last stretches of the Kirby stuff, that's part of what makes it just so demoralizing. Is is that whatever's going on with Lee in terms of he's clearly overtaxed with all of his other responsibilities and he's not the guy in the driver's seat for the FF and whatever is happening with Kirby the characters are acting in ways that are kind of in particularly in this one it's just distressing i guess it's funny i always well, expect it, reed to be kirby, a dick but yeah mm-hmm. kirby just doesn't care yeah he's literally doing it to fill the pages at this point mm-hmm. and and talking of that, let's talk about FF100. Oh, God. Yeah. Let's... FF100. Uh, the fabulous FF must face 100 deaths during the long journey home. Yes. It is difficult to, uh, to properly offer a synopsis of this issue. Actually, yeah. no. It's very easy. The, yes. FF, the issue starts with the FF falling to the ground uh, because their, their saucer has been destroyed before the issue started. Yes. Um, They're guided to the ground. The FF now includes Crystal again, by the way. Yes. Uh, for the the remainder of the issue, mm-hmm. the FF are faced with a number of villains that they have faced in the in earlier issues. And some that they haven't, like Kang. I love that Kang pops no up. Yeah. But it's not really the, the real guys, guys. It's actually... The Mad Thinker's androids, except according to the issue, it's not. Yes. It's Puppet Master's androids. Which is amazing because we've the already... Mad Thinker's, the Mad, but the Mad Thinker's in the issue. Yes. He's called the Mad Thinker. Yeah. 
But uh, where is the panel where it's super weird? Uh, yeah, so on page six, mm-hmm. Reed says, they're androids too, possessing the powers and memories of their human counterparts. Only one man could create such deadly <laughs> monstrosities, said Sue. You're like, yeah, the mad thinker. Who right. did it four issues ago? Exactly. No, exactly. Reed says, yes, this has to be the work of the puppet master. No, Reed, he has an entirely different set of powers. Exactly. That's the guy who controls living people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No. That's puppet master is you guys, but it's not corrected throughout anything else yeah it's it's really interesting to me we have i and it was funny as i was reading through this i'm like oh right there is an issue where uh, the mad thinker and the puppet master team up and the mad thinker using his ultra precise computer mind to calculate exactly the amount of controllers clay the puppet master can use to take control of people. I think I want to say they take control of Ben and have him yeah, like yeah. act like an asshole here. What I find fascinating is they revisit that concept. And yet, even though Lee and Kirby told that original issue, it's as if someone had read that issue, described it to them over a long lunch in a loud bar where they couldn't hear. And they had to recapture it not knowing anything about the Mad Thinker and the Puppet Master, despite the fact that they should know, because the Puppet Master... So, the Puppet Master is creating androids, which isn't his power, and you see him literally, at one point, he breaks a cube of special controlling clay, just as we see him on page five, as we have in all the other issues, and then he pushes a button, and a a door rises from inside the, the... command clay showing the androids that he's made that are referred to as androids throughout the rest of the issue it is i mean it's one of those things that's great it's like i don't even care about continuity i and i'm fascinated by how you just got the basics wrong you know it was like there's so there's that there's the fact that all of their villains come back because it's an anniversary issue. It's an anniversary issue right. still in 20 pages, though, because we're in those days. All their villains come back with all of their powers and, for some reason, personalities. Fuck knows why that's the case. But the FF beat them all in, like, a panel each. Yeah. Which is kind of amazing. It's just all of it is wacky as shit. I mean, it's, it's yeah. the, the weirdest. It's, it's as if the plot had been given... Or the direction to be given to Kirby. We have to have everyone in it. You've got no extra pages. Yeah. Uh, just just don't think about the plot. Just make it happen. Right. It yeah. Is, it's astonishingly sloppy. Also, my favorite thing, uh, besides the fact that the Mad Thinker and the Puppet Master are completely mixed up, is the Red Ghost shows up. And when the Red Ghost shows up, he has hair. He has hair, and he basically looks i i looks like, like the Mad Thinker. Thinker. Yeah, exactly. Thinker. Yes. He's, he's in fact yeah. wearing the same sort of you know red blouse. No, I it's. Think, uh, I think that's a colorist problem, though. To yeah. be honest. Well, I can't. Who? Who? I can't. He looks exactly identical. You understand why he's confused. Also, for those of you who have always been like, the one problem that you had with Watchmen was that Jack Kirby didn't draw it. Let me reassure you. That is actually a blessing for those of us because, amazingly enough, Jack Kirby, who can draw just about anything in any combination of panels, does cannot 
do anything with a three by three grid. And that's what happens. Most of the action scenes happen here on a three by three grid. And it is so rushed, so jammed, so busy and so undynamic. Like it is just, even though it's filled with people being punched and all of everything that you associate with Kirby is in those panels. And yet because of the level of compression, they lose so much punch and power and it's, it's amazing. It's amazing how much it just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sad. Watching Kirby forced to jump through endless fight scenes that he doesn't have any real enthusiasm for. He has far more enthusiasm for sort of the uh, Crosby and Hope on the road subplot of the FF or trying to get home after the flying saucer are shut down. And so at various points, they end up on yeah, camel in boats. I, I, also love, I do love the Johnny's like, hey, you guys, while you're resting, I got us some camel. Yeah, I, it's great. I mean, th- and those are the <laughs> scenes where maybe in part because they're the only scenes where he can open uh, the storytelling up a little bit yeah. before the action but, but, starts. Yeah, it, it's true. But it should be pointed out, the FF's 100th issue, celebrating mm-hmm. how great the FF are. The FF are not only pretty ineffectual, the storytelling is atrocious. The dialogue is perfunctory at best. The actual plot sees the FF not to defeat the main bad guys because the Puppet Master and Mad Thinker are undone by their own Hulk puppet. Yes. Yes. And again, this is one of those things where... Lee and Kirby are, uh, again, there's some slight cross purposes here. I honestly feel that Lee, that Kirby is sort of talking about, he has two creators and who knows, maybe, maybe they're supposed to represent Lee and Kirby. I don't know because one's doing all the other, all the work and the other one's just standing there with very bad fake looking hair. And what you end up having is a situation where they finally create something that they cannot control and it, and it totally undoes them. But of course, the way that it's presented in the story, Stan explicitly has the puppet master saying, I miscalculated the amount of control clay, which again is the mad thinker's job. But, you know, I do, I will say this issue. The mad thinker, after being called the mad thinker, like in what, page three? Yeah. Uh, the mad thinker is essentially a glorified lab technician for the rest of the issue. Yeah, yeah, it really is true. I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like, oh, hey, we'll put them together. Let me just say, there are things that, that this is a very, it's kind of, it's such a perfunctory issue that Kirby's heart is not in, that it is, is genuinely sad making. And yet I do want to point out that A, uh, I've always loved the cover to FF100 ever since it popped up as a, Com, uh, a puzzle that you assembled from the back of the Marvel tr- bubblegum trading cards from the 70s. And I think I also had a sticker of it. And I remember thinking that it was great. And it's a to me, it's a, a great little piece of Kirby art where you look at it and it's got all these people. It's just a big brawl. But particularly, again, the way that uh, Kirby uses the Human Torch to guide your eye into the scene, I love also, in issue 100, you've got five members of the Fantastic Four. It's rare that you get to see Crystal and Sue in the same issue actually fighting. And what's wonderful is they both kick ass. One of the things that I really did love about this issue is the fact that um, 
Sue and Crystal end up taking out like a huge chunk of enemies together with like Sue. Where is it? Where Sue basically kicks some ass. Oh, it's the next issue with the Magia where she kicks ass. But Crystal and Sue defeat all of the Frightful Four. And then basically Crystal turns around, grabs uh, the wizard's anti-gravity disc, and then takes out the entire, all of the super apes by herself. So Mm -hmm. what I really love is they're MVPs and they're fighters. And there is no, like, there's no, no, at no point, maybe because things are so rushed, does Crystal have a chance to say, I'm using the strategies that Reed Richards taught me to be able to defeat these villains, you know? <laughs> you know the sign wants to put that in there, though. Oh, I'm sure he did. It was just way too goddamn busy. So, you know, it's, it's, it's sad. It's also, there's some impressive words that Stan is going to have to go on to eat on the letters page of issue 100, where he talks about how he and uh, Jack Kirby uh, hereby pledge to continue unabated their efforts to see that the FF continues to earn its title as the world's greatest comic magazine. You deserve no less, and Stan and Jack can promise no more. Um, yeah, well, uh, Stan is very good at making other people promise for him that... Uh, are not going to hang around for those promises. So <laughs> let's move on. FF yes. 101 and Jeff, we're doing relatively good time. Uh, yeah. FF 101. I'm going to be, I'm just going to put it out there. This is my favorite issue of these run of these issues. What? Yeah. Okay. There, there are a couple of reasons for this. Uh, sure. FF 101, the fabulous FF faced the deadly killers of the Magia in Bedlam in the Baxter building. Yeah. Bedlam in the Baxter building starts off with, the greatest opening sequence uh, of this run of issues uh, in which Johnny is playing the guitar mm-hmm. and Ben and a newly brunette long-haired Alicia. Yes, an Alicia who looks nothing like any nothing incarnation. Like yes. Um, but anyway, the two of them are, are what would you say? What you seen? Doing the twist. Yeah. While that is going on, it's such a great splash page. Johnny is also comparing the thing learning to dance, uh, like Woody Allen teaching Cassius Clay how to box. Yes. I love everything about that page. It's the greatest page. I have to say, I love that page. Again, one of the things that shocks me to show you how, I mean, we've seen so many of these sequences. The sequence on page two where Ben really tries to cut loose, ends up falling on his ass and everyone laughs at him while he's like, what a revolting development kind of thing, is so rushed. It's so paced so differently than the way that Kirby usually does because it's on a six panel grid and just is over so quickly. And I I feel it feels off. The pacing is really, once again, off in this issue. In a way that I find frustrating. This opening sequence I like. I actually like the opening two-page sequence of the following issue as well. Those are maybe my highlights, but they are I, I, But I, I, I love this opening sequence. Uh, I love the opening sequence. ends with the uh, FF get a letter from the Magia. The yes. Magia, let's not forget. Marvel's fake Mafia. I love that they're called the Magia so much. I cannot tell you how much I love that. And you know what I love even more? What? The Magia are going to be in Agent Carter next year. Oh, really? Oh, that's that means hilarious. they're at like Marvel, whoever makes Agent Carter TV, Marvel Studios. Um, 
is going to introduce the world to the fact that the Marvel did not want to say the Mafia. And so completely we started by saying, what if we call them the Magia? Yeah. yeah. I love that so much. The Magia <laughs> are so hilarious. Almost as hilarious as the plot the Magia are behind here. This is honestly the plot that the Magia have uh, whatnot. They have bought the Baxter building. Yes. They are going to evict the FF in the thinking that they're going to do it so quickly that the FF won't have time to take their stuff with them so the Magia can then legally claim it. Yes. I shit you not, that's actually their plan. That That is their plan. It is also a plan that gets abandoned ridiculously quickly because by the time you get to the end of the issue, you're like, but wait. And yet, uh, yeah, no, it's it's a mess. You get to see Kirby sort of revisit his kind of fixation of uh, gangsters with not nearly the sort of love that he brought to the scroll gangsters, but on page Again, four and five. super rushed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, some fun street scenes, but yeah, it's it's just imagine an issue of FF on fast forward and making very little sense, and you get I think FF one hundred one Bedlam in the Baxter Building. It's kind of interesting to me that you know you've got pages to me that look good where the torch takes to the skies, tries to repel the Magia invaders on top of the Baxter Building who are seizing trying to seize everything, despite the fact that part of the problem set up in the early half of the issue that these guys are technically the landlords and have legal rights to do so is very quickly discarded and moves right into the shoot 'em up, punch 'em up scene. And the fact that the Magia who decide that it's very important that they dress like uh, Halloween pumpkins, um, pur- purple and yellow, but wear the faces of jack-o'-lanterns are able to take out the rest of the FF with a hearty dose of Noxo gas and then proceed to put them in uh, cement coffins and dump them in the bay just as they would right? anyone it's, else. It's so wacky. It's yeah. so absolutely crazily wacky. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, it's a very strange, like it, you have such a great high concept and I really do genuinely think the, we've bought the building, we're evicting them because we want their shit. Yeah. It's, it's kind of great. I genuinely love that idea. It's and fun, and it's a real shout-out to the like early issues, like issues yes. four and five and stuff. Yeah, like, like when they, got, they had no money and they had to make a movie for the Submariner. Like, it's that level of goofy, which I kind yeah. of love. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the execution is just super wacky because uh, in, in Stan's dialogue, he puts it down to the operation has been taken over by a guy who's too trigger-happy. But one way or another, whether that was Kirby's intent or not, it does very quickly devolve into thuggery. Yeah. It's basically uh, and thuggery. And not, not, even, not even entertaining superheroics either. Uh, I would say that's mostly true. I mean, again, I'm very excited that when it comes to the FF being dropped in the bay in their, in their cement coffins... Crystal is the first one to free herself and more or less frees the rest of the team as well. Uh, and then I'm very excited that when cornered by the Magia, she's invisible in the Baxter building. Sue, uh, when she someone tries to catch her, turns and fights the Magia for two pages, two and a half pages, and basically kicks their ass. Like, yes. Which is kind of great for like the second last issue, and Sue just is great. Yes. Exactly. You know, it, it, it is... Sue doesn't lose is the other thing. Sue mm-hmm. ends up, quote-unquote, surrendering 
to distract them, distract the mob from the fact that the thing's right behind them. That's right. That's right. And then instantly turns around and forms a force field around uh, the, the quick draw thug with the gun. And the shells bounce around inside, you know, just about killing him so that he surrenders. Sue wins. And it's great. It's such a nice change of pace. Again, also refreshingly free of like, Reed Richards taught me how to do this. If it hadn't been for Reed Richards' amazing tactician-ness, you know. Instead, we get a completely sort of interesting, nonsensical wrap-up. Graham, let me ask you. This is the thing. As you may know, Willie Lumpkin, the famed postman for the Fantastic Four, he apparently never appears during Kirby's run. We've seen various postmasters in the FF, and I've kept an eye out for him. I keep waiting for him to appear, but he's he's not here yet, is he? I'm going to look up when Willie Lumpkin first appeared. Well, there we go. Fantastic Four issue 11. Oh, did he? Wait, by name? Mm. Uh, yep. Yes, he does. Mm. That's true, because it's true. He he wiggles his ears. He demonstrates his wiggly ears. Oh, you're right. To become a member, try to become a member of the thing, yep. right? Yep. Oh, there you go. Okay, there you go. Okay. Well, so, but yes. But had, of course, appeared before that. Or had been created before that, I should say. Did he? How so? Willie Lumpkin was originally created by Stanley and Dan DiCarlo as a newspaper strip. Wow. I did not know that, Graham. That newspaper strip actually ran in Marvel Age in the 80s and 90s. Oh, this is how you know. I was like, how the hell does he know something like... Wow, well done, Graham. You win definitely the uh, Baxter building MVP of the episode. That's that's a, an amazingly fun fact. Well, thank you very much. It's more fun than anything that happens in the issue. So we should say that the end of this issue is... And the reason you're talking about Willie Lumpkin is the doorman of the issue turns out to be the Mr. Big of the Magia. That's right. The, of course... The fact that he bought the building was not nearly as much an in to being able to understand and control the Fantastic Four as posing for their doorman as their doorman for an indeterminate period of time. God bless. Yeah. Okay, we're on to the final Jack Kirby issue. That's four ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. We have genuinely been speeding through these issues, and I feel perfectly okay with that. Listeners, if you think that we're shortchanging them, A, I'm sorry, and B, I promise you we're not. Yeah, and in fact, the thing that's amazing is is that, in theory, we have, if we if we wanted to wrap up right at two hours, we would have less than ten minutes to talk about this episode, uh, at this issue. And frankly, that might still be giving it too much time. I mean, other than just the fact that it's, it's a sad-making issue. I, I'm fascinated it by... Is. So, mm-hmm. so this is Kirby's final issue, and it is part one of a two-part story. Actually, it's part one of a three-part story, I believe. Oh, is it? Okay. It's, yeah, oh, it's it definitely through part one of a continued story. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Part one of a continued story. Yeah. Um, and it's just... It's super, super depressing. Yeah. Because uh, the villains of the piece are the Submariner and Magneto, of all people. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Magneto, who making his first appearance in Fantastic Four, yeah, who decides that he would like to team up with the Submariner to to fuck with humanity. Yes, I, you know how it is. Um, what is very strange about this issue is it almost feels like a, an earlier issue in mm-hmm. many ways. Mm-hmm. I feel you get a a, a much bigger. Um, 
you, you get a much more expansive pacing mm-hmm. than Kirby Delight himself for a while. You have more of the full page splashes and everything. It's actually a, a page shorter. I don't know if you've noticed that. So if the last few issues have all been a page shorter. Oh, I didn't. I thought they all tossed up at 20 pages, right? Yeah, but it's 20 pages, but two of them are half pages. Oh, right, the half page. They start bringing in half page. The stories are actually only 19 pages long. That's right. Uh, Despite that, it does feel more expansive. For example, the issue opens with uh, Ben Grimm's got a uh, cold. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as Crystal's giving him medicine, he sneezes and he destroys the room. Ha, 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 ha. But whereas the previous issue, Ben's lovable antics that are destructive because that's apparently the shtick um, was over by halfway through page two. This runs through halfway through page three. Yes, exactly. And feels to me all the better for it. Like I have that feeling of like, mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, FF 102 more or less ends halfway through page three for me because everything that follows feels so I mean, I'm assuming that that the whole scene, the following sequence after Ben sneezing and Reed coming in and being like, ah, you know, is basically the Submariner ends up finding an island with dinosaurs running rampant. And I'm assuming is the Savage Land and maybe Magneto's previous appearance in X-Men. I'm assuming it 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 is and it is Mm -hmm. um, because it's in the right place. Mm-hmm. beneath frozen Antarctica, which is where the Savage Land is. And Magneto is wearing the costume that he had previously been seen in, which is the Thomas Adams run of X-Men. Okay, thank you. When he's last seen in the Savage Land. So that that is what's going on. It's never explained. It's but... never explained by Lee, and it is the sort of thing that you almost never see with Kirby and perhaps consequently feels really alien it just does not have the sort of feel that that kirby would give it and then it sort of is compounded by lee not even mentioning you know that's the sort of thing where you would get a sort of uh helpful editorial blurb box but Mm -hmm. um but yes submariner finds magneto sees that there a flame of life still flickers within the man and so bring takes him back to atlantis uh thus i think think allowing magneto to if i'm understanding things correctly uh start controlling the tops of buildings to try and crush the the human torch on page six for no reason is that what we believe has happened that seems to be what's happening mm-hmm. but because he because uh, magneto now has equipment that can magnify his magnetic powers Oh, that's right. Fold, he you. says on page eight, mm-hmm. um, and it, there's kind of the the implication that Magneto just a Magneto did it because it's never actually defined, yeah. and b Magneto did it just for shits and giggles yeah. because there's no reason Magneto would do this. He's not a Fantastic Four villain. He's never met the Fantastic Four before. That's right. If, if he has this ability, why isn't he going after the X Men? Well. I think he's trying to do, I mean, again, it's such a sketched out little thing, but you get the sense that Magneto in that sort of I'm a schemer kind of way that that it gets attributed to him and Dr. Doom occasionally is trying to create a war between the Submariner and the FF by doing things that seems nothing like the Submariner would do, such as raining tin upon New York and throwing buildings at Johnny Storm. Um, and fortunately this allows Reed to completely overreact 
and launch a quote-unquote sonic probe to track down where these beams are happening. The sonic probe leads back to Atlantis and begins a situation where a war is created. Um, One of the things I love is is that uh, in this issue is is that, again, Reed pushes a button and clearly launches what is a destructive missile upon Atlantis, which... Well, to be fair, Ben pushes the button. No, 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 no. This is what's great. To be fair, Reed pushes the button, and it, and according to Stan, it is a sonic probe. Then a few pages later, Ben presses the exact same button, and Reed says, Ben, you release the missile. It'll follow the sonic wave right to its target. And Ben says, you just know it, mister. Now... That's immediately followed by a scene on page, you know, the last panel of 14 and 15 shows Atlantis being rocked, buildings falling and nearly crushing people, if not for the Submariner. And it's very explicitly said, this is Reed's quote unquote sonic wave. And that's actually true. He does say, what do you know about the deadly sonic wave? Yeah. And then when and then the cell approaches. Exactly. Which ends up doing nothing because the Submariner stops it. Now, I personally think that the Sonic Wave is just a load of hooey, and what ends up happening is Reed has retaliated and Lee's like, that's not going to fly, and takes advantage of a lack of missile to, to, to mitigate things and once again have, you know, Reed stand, blame Ben Jack for everything that goes wrong in, in the issue. But uh, I... It's a, it's a, it's a weird nonsensical sort of scheme such that the sonic wave uh, meanwhile magneto is still continuing to fuck with the ff by having them get attacked by you know electrodes and things um and all and of this it's, it's yeah. none of it makes sense well it's very like, much... I, I, the plot is as yeah. as lee explains it Magneto is trying to provoke a war between Atlantis and humanity that will kill the Atlanteans and humans, leaving mutants alive. Right? right. That I'm understanding. Yes. Lee's definition of Magneto's plot. Yeah, I think that's even Kirby's definition of the plot. I, I feel that there's a much better way to do it. <laughs> well, I, 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 I feel that I feel that everything is so amazingly scattered and all of the. Yeah, but I but that is very much Kirby, I think. And what I think is fascinating is Kirby is trying to have a plot. It's it's a little messy. He's doing stuff that is not really his thing, such as tying into previous continuity for another title. And he's basically having a situation where, okay, Magneto gets these powers because he's with the Submariner, and he basically creates a let's you know let's heighten the tensions so that a fight starts between the two of them, and somehow. Because Kirby is more comfortable having the Fantastic Four or, or any and all of his heroes react negatively or react from instinct or be surprised or have weaknesses. The whole plot depends on the idea that the FF, when attacked, figure out that it's Namor and are like, well, we're going to if he's going to fuck with us, we're going to fuck with him. Yeah. That's, and then Stan my, has to take it and change the script so that it's like suddenly the FF aren't doing that, even though it's clear that they are. And ultimately, it's just Ben's angry temper that ends up provoking World War Three, essentially. It, yeah, it's the strangest. 
plot. Yeah. Not so much because they, they have to work out its namer, because I completely buy that. Yeah. But the, they will then respond in such a way that will be so aggressive as to provoke a war. Yeah. Is such a very strange plot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, the issue ends with uh, Namor, as provoked by Magneto, deciding mm-hmm. to attack. Yeah. Um, and the FF seeing new activity on the Marine Raider Scope, a fleet yes. heading this way. And the, the final panel is an alarm going off, as Johnny says, if that's the case, we're in for war. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this is this is Lee doing the best that he can with a such an abstract cliffhanger. It is literally people looking at a an alarm that they've never seen before going off in close up. And in a way, one could almost look at it as as generosity on the part of Kirby because he does not I mean, at least you can tell that whatever's happening is dramatic. But it's ridiculously abstract and it's you know it's troubling to me well, it's that's, like it's so funny that you look at it as uh generous in the part of Kirby because there is there are countless ways to play the idea that Namor has declared war on humanity that could be done in a more dramatic way than it is oh it's not dramatic no but it is vague enough that Stan can write whatever he wants on top of it and I think that that was you know I mean and again Kirby has checked out the last seven issues that we've looked at have followed this same sort of last page that's basically seven panels with three type panels at the bottom that are supposed to be your, like, end note. You know what I mean? And so Kirby doesn't bother to change that. I mean, don't get me wrong. He really is checked out. But I'm not even sure. What I find fascinating is, is I assume that he he walked off the book you know, I, I that is not. I, I could be wrong, but that is not a Kirby cover on on the cover of 102. No, it's not. It's not. It's, it's, I'm assuming uh, it's, it's Romita and Vitropin who it go is. over to take over the team. And so, uh, yeah. So it's very much this idea of like Kirby at some point. You know, he finishes this issue and quits. You know, and it well, is okay. So. So yeah. let's actually get to the most interesting part of this issue, Ooh. which is not the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Stan's so- soapbox. Oh, yes. Right. Uh, yeah. I'll just read it out and then you can read it. Please do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who says lightning never strikes twice? Remember a few years back when St- Steve Ditko suddenly left the hallowed halls of Marvel to seek his fortunes elsewhere? Well, at the time of this writing, early in March, Jack Kirby has unexpectedly announced his resignation from our surprised but stalwart little staff. They say things usually happen in threes, so we figure out that we figure that a few years hence we'll be receiving a preemptory notice of abdication from Irving Forbush himself. However, until that dreaded day arrives, your barnstorming bullpen is passionately preparing some of the wildest and wackiest surprises yet to electrify your eyeballs and stagger your senses. That's where we're at understaffed, undermanned, and underfed, but as bushy tails and bewildered as ever. So watch for fire, the fireworks, friends, as we turn ourselves on, knock ourselves out, and do ourselves in to prove once again that while we may not be the biggest, we're still the boldest and the best. Yeah. You're right. That is arguably the, the most fascinating thing about this issue. 
because it really is um uh it's it's not it's not quite the Stan Reed blaming the Benjack for everything going wrong, but it is amazing. I think as you pointed out in an email to me earlier, how much Stan uses words like bewildered to suggest that this caught him completely by surprise. That you know, that this was totally something that they well, could not he have seen unexpectedly coming. announced his resignation from our surprised little yes. staff. Yeah, surprised and stalwart staff. Yeah. So it's just, and also I love the uh, passive aggressive dig at DC. Yes. It may not be the biggest. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. As if what, what, what the re the entire reason why Kirby was leaving was just the idea that he'd gotten a bigger paycheck. You know, it's, it's, it's some, it's a, it's a lot of denial on, on Stan's part, you know, and it's really, it's fascinating to me how much it's also this crazy, like, put the best face on it, you know, at the level of a military leader being like, oh, hey, good news, everyone. Now that we don't have any more, any food, we can like march on the enemy in twice the time. You know, it's like very, very strange to me, the the sort of weirdly martyristic tone of it and also kind of a this all but assures us of victory like the the idea of lightning striking twice not you know it made me realize like most of the time when you talk about lightning t- striking twice it's usually not a it's not a sign of tragedy you know what no, i mean success lightning yes strikes twice is or rather lightning doesn't strike twice is normally saying that you can't repeat a success yeah exactly so for him to say that that's happened is such a weird way of of literally talking about this massive blow in 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 a way that's like, hooray! We're we'll have no choice but to be wilder and wackier and more innovative than ever, you know. And I, it's, I'm, I'm kind of I'm intrigued and also appalled and kind of saddened by that, you know, because yeah, of course, it's, it's... yeah. I, it's it's the strangest because uh, I actually secrets of the podcast listeners. <laughs> I read I read further. I, I did too. I read I read to the end of issue one hundred and four. Um, and one of the reasons I did was I was wondering how they were going to handle the lack of Kirby. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if they were they were going to reference it, and it was only when like they didn't in the issues mm-hmm. or in the letters page. I was like, is it in bullpen bulletins? It it seems so strange for it to be there. Yeah. The, oh, that it's in the stand soapbox as opposed to yeah. like the letters pages or somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I I do agree. It's kind of uh, I don't know. I mean, it's because I feel like it's him being like, well, we've got to address it. You know, it can't be unaddressed. Um, and yet there's such a strange sort of like, oh, I'm just going to fold it into the back. And it's not, it, it is very, especially considering, again, literally just two issues earlier, you have Stan in complete In, in the letters page. Yes. Yeah. Talking about reaching a hundred issues, how proud quote unquote we are and everything that quote unquote we vow to do and then when Kirby's out 
like after this whole time where where Kirby and Lee, where Lee especially, but Kirby has also backed it up in terms of when the two of them have cameoed in the comic as a pair, as a team, as a duo. And then for that not to be addressed at all is a really, apart from Lee's whole thing of very much like, okay, well, you know, once you're no longer a member of the team, like Lee, at least in public, I mean, he's not going to say anything bad about Kirby, just like he didn't say anything bad about Ditko. And in fact, you know, from articles and interviews that go on past this expresses a certain amount of sadness that, that it happened. Um, there's still something that is, uh, kind of disingenuous to it. It is a little bit of the idea of like, Oh, right. Like as much as you want to believe and believe me, I, as somebody who well before you and I first started recording the very first Baxter building podcast episode, Graham, I thought that I had disengaged myself from the myth of the mighty Marvel bullpen and of Lee and Kirby happily creating an amazing synergy. And God knows like the last 102 issues have shown like that there were many things going on, but not necessarily, you know, creative synergy. Uh, There is still sort of that weird, sad feeling of, it being so quickly brushed over, you know, um, by Stan. It's it's strange, and and maybe it's only the best that he could do at the time. Uh, but it 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 it's it made me sad. It really did. Well, he, here's a question: Do you think that Stan genuinely didn't see it coming? <sighs> I would have a very difficult time believing it. I mean, I think so. I honestly, I do think so. Cause I think Stan is more of an egoist. And also I think that there was a certain amount of cognitive dissonance that allowed him because, because Stan, even though he was editor in chief of Marvel, he was not the guy who was calling the shots you know, from top to bottom, he was not the guy, you know, he had the perfect deniable culpability in terms of whenever anyone came to him and was like, Hey, I need more money. He's like, I'm not the guy who cuts the checks, you know, admittedly it's Stan's uncle, Martin Goodman, but how much, you know, Goodman actually was able to keep Lee shielded and operating in that happy little bubble. You know, I, I feel that Stanley has some very complex feelings of denial that, that are running in order to make him run. And I feel like there's a variety of things about Stan and his failings that I think I suspect he is sometimes trying to overcompensate for. And one of those may be the fact that for a guy who's aware that he's kind of ultimately in it for himself, he works super hard to create a feeling of community, you know, which is Mm -hmm. one of his more enduring creations. I don't know. I mean, do you think I'm wrong? Do you think, do you think Stan was surprised and completely caught off guard or? I kind of think he might have been. Mm -hmm. I kind of think that um, Stan is so, and again, this is me just reading into a lot of things that I've read, both from 
Lee himself and mm-hmm. but what others have said about him. Mm-hmm. I can totally see him falling for his own hype and being completely oblivious. Right. To to any disquiet. Mm-hmm. And, and and seeing the the subsequent resignation of of, of Kirby as as something that just came out of the blue. Right. Right. And kind of knocked him off his guard. Could be. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's also a certain amount of, I want to say entitlement, you know, and I could be wrong, but I always feel like I've certainly had experience in jobs where, where there's a kind of real caste system operating and kind of that way that, you know, as happens in colonialism and other power structures, um, the superiors sometimes feel that the people who work beneath them are kind of mentally inferior. You know what I mean? Are like children kind of, uh, mm-hmm. they really fall into that paternal mindset. And so there's just that idea of like, Oh no, they're, they're happy to be led kind of thing, you know? So I don't know there, that might also be very surprising for Stan. Cause I think Stan may well have taken for granted. I mean, Kirby had been there for a long, long time. And I mean, and to be fair, even though whether or not Lee was, to what extent Lee actively um, participated in the exploitation of Kirby, he was aware how much of the success of Marvel was attributable. Yeah, was attributable to to Kirby. Like it's not when he, when Marvel starts to expand um, and Lee is, I mean, even when he's doing how to draw comics, you know, the Marvel comics way with John Basima drawing it, all of the things that he is telling people to do are Jack Kirby's basically drawing ticks and storytelling ticks and that whole maximization of impact that, that Kirby was able to create and refine, Lee was aware that that was what worked and it was more important to him than whether or not, I mean, I, I'm sure he wanted people who were able to more or less mimic the swing and stand voice, but that was not nearly as important to him as seeing what people like Basima could do or Buckler could do with the Jack Kirby template. So, I mean, I think he was incredibly aware of how invaluable Kirby was to creating Marvel. He did not fool himself. And so it is kind of fascinating. I I can't imagine that he found out that Kirby was leaving Marvel and he was like, oh, okay, everything's going to be fine. You know? So, yeah, I think, I think it's a really strange, scary time. I would think to, to be Stan Lee and the way that he sort of handled it with a, we're going to, there's nowhere to go, but up, you know, is, is really amazing. Um, so I don't know Well, who knows what he thought internally <laughs> internally, right. Internally. I think he was like, holy shit. I just, you know, my soul crapped itself, but I, but I, yeah, think you have to wonder how much of like internally or, or even within the office. Yeah. Um, he was like, well, it was fun while it lasted you guys. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, it, 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 it is, it is, it's funny because it's, you know, it's a little bit like watching a sunset, you know, it's like 
there's parts, it's like there's a glorious day that we've managed to watch unfold over the course of these 102 issues. Then sunset came. Then it just kind of got dim and went dark at the end. You know what I mean? It was kind of like, oh, that's just, okay, now we have to stumble home <laughs> in uncertain, in, uh, in, a, in a darkened landscape. So, it, so is that is that how you describe this these last eight issues, the the, the dimness? Yeah, the, yeah. This is definitely I I would go on a limb and say that the issues before this, with Kirby really doing what Kirby wanted, being kind of a very strange little sunset, like glorious, different from what be, came before it but kind of entrancing. And then this was watching the last sliver of light slip over the hills and watching just, yeah, just watching everything go dim. It's because it, the, the, these really were, I mean, I, for people who are listening and haven't read them, yeah, um, it, it sounds like we're just piling on these issues, but they are in every single one of them is a bad issue. Yeah, every single one of them for all the enjoyment that they have, and like I said, one hundred and one is an issue I enjoy. They have real flaws. Yeah, they have significant flaws that show that Kirby was just not as focused in terms of plotting and pacing as he was, e- even the issues before this. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that he was not as interested in, uh, in in subplots and in keeping a continuity going. That he really checked out. Yeah. And I, I'd say, I think that he really, really checked out in 102. Mm-hmm. His art in 102 is a very, very strange. Oh, it is. Uh, well, that's what I said. I feel like the first two and a half pages feel like Kirby, like complete with Crystal holding Ben Grimm's nose and just all that stuff. And then after that, it's gone. Like, if you look at the just how gorgeously Kirby could draw the Submariner, and he draws him fantastically. And I mean, that issue that we didn't like, like issue six or whatever, where you've got the Submariner jumping through space to more or less rescue the, the Baxter building. You've got, you've got a K- Kirby with a character, with someone else's character, but clearly a character that he respected and drew with a lot of power and... What you get in this last issue is such a a dashed off stylized version of the Submariner that, you know, it it looks like a convention sketch of the Submariner more or less all the way through. Like even even by the the Kirby standards. The entire issue looks much more like Sinnet than Kirby. Mm. It looks like Kirby did amazingly loose layouts for it. And that Sinnet is really responsible for a lot of the, the the bones. Yeah, yeah. I I would have to say that's that's pretty true. But like even the things where like Kirby excels, like his splash pages. That splash page on issue nine is underwhelming. You know, really excessively underwhelming. And and again, I feel there's that thing. I wasn't paying attention to. Uh, X-Men, I sort of wish that I'd gone through and reread all the pre-Claremont stuff because I hadn't read those issues leading in, but I kept looking at this issue, this Magneto design being like, it looks ugly and Kirby has no interest in drawing it. 
it's yeah it's true it's true it's very very interesting and 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 it is an ugly design i would Mm -hmm. argue it's a design that in some ways didn't make sense i guess Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um because i don't think it was meant to make sense it's a design that makes sense when magneto is un is unmasked unhelmeted yes uh, and then he puts on his helmet then because, well, I am Magneto. Right. Um, but I don't think the two are meant to go together. But Kirby chooses to keep the helmet on. Yeah. Because it's the visual signifier that it's Magneto. That's right. But doesn't return the rest of the costume. You know, one of the things that's also really weird at the at the risk of, you know, this is sort of outside our ken. But when Kirby returns to Marvel in the mid-70s, there are actually... Apart from when he's doing covers, because he does covers, and a, a great chance, your only real chance to get to see Kirby revisit a lot of the heroes he's created is in the actual pretty exciting action-packed covers that he did for just about everyone and everything in Marvel. But when it came to telling the stories, the only characters that he really returns to that he had created previously are Captain America, of course. The Incredible Hulk, which sort of pops up in the Eternals, but not really. And Magneto, who pops up in a Captain America annual, you know? (laughs) And so it is, to me, really interesting that you see Magneto here drawn with a lot of either confusion or disdain by Kirby. And I'm fascinated by the idea that when Kirby comes back to Marvel, he draws him again. So maybe it is a sort of thing where Kirby's like, oh, I wanted to draw this issue with like... You know, with Magneto in it, you know, and Magneto's the guy who's teaching the Submariner. He's he's playing the sneaky Doctor Doom role of the guy who's plotting behind your back. And they were like, sure, absolutely. You just got to, you know, rescue him from the Savage Land and you've got to make sure that you draw him like the previous, you know, outfit. And Jack Kirby just sort of starts thinking, like, maybe I really should, like, take Carmen Infantino up on his... Like, maybe I'm just not cut yeah. out for this anymore, you know? Yeah. yeah. So. It's, it's, it's such a... Uh, all of these issues, these these eight issues in general, mm-hmm. are such a sad way for, for Kirby's run to end. Yeah, because it really doesn't... There's There's... Again, it's like the sunset metaphor. There's no blaze of glory here. It's just kind of ignominious, you know? But at the same time, it also feels inevitable. Because oh, these issues, it's not like you, like you can't even say, oh, you know, Kirby had had somewhere he was going. Right. Because it is eight issues of treading water. It's eight issues. And arguably, even when you see Kirby indulging the, the stuff that he wants, even when you've got a three-parter with the thing in a gladiatorial ring fighting with Torgo, it's still not what you think of as prime Marvel. You know, like you really see what the story in a best case scenario, you see uh, uh, a best case hypothesis for how how to look at the Fantastic Four after issue 60 or something is Kirby trying to figure out how to tell what he wants to do when he realizes that one of the things that he most enjoys doing creating new characters and new situations is really just actively enriching everyone else but him. Like instead he starts thinking, how do I synthesize 
material that I've made or even material like gangster movies or monster movies that excite me. Um, how do, how do I, how do I create stories? And those stories end up being so different from the potential of what you see at the Fantastic Four's height with Lee and Kirby that, you know, thank God having an appreciation for Kirby, I'm like, Oh, I can see him. I can see Kirby in here and I can see where Kirby's engaged, but definitely Kirby and Ga- I do get the points where people complain toward the end that Kirby Kirby wasn't necess- wasn't Marvel Comics on his own, you know, and that he shouldn't have been allowed to just tell whatever story that he wanted or you know, it's like I of course feel that he should, but definitely what he created was a severe swerve from you know, what he and Stan ended up creating with Marvel comics, you know, in general. And, um, and that's fine for what it is. But then when that starts to run out too, when he's no longer interested, you know, these last issues, like you said, there's no other way to describe them, but dire, you know? Um, and it is a shame. I mean, I can't imagine what the optimal situation would have been. I mean, if you had to pick, a last issue for Kirby, what would you, what would you have picked? And that's a oh, horrible God. question to ask you. Cause I can barely remember half the issue numbers on my own. You know, you know I honestly might've picked 94. I yeah. honestly would have been okay with him going out with the, the Agatha Harkness issue. Interesting. Interesting. Because bringing back the frightful four mm-hmm. and, and using them as comedy characters. Right. Uh, and also establishing uh, a new normal, for the domestic side of the characters mm-hmm. with, with Agatha being the, the one who watches after, who looks after Franklin, which theoretically clears the way for Sue to come back to the team full time. Right. Feels like it could be a closure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's know? a good point. Yeah. Other, I think that is a good otherwise, point. Otherwise I'd go all the way back to the, the final issue of the, the him storyline. Oh, Interesting. That's a great, that would be a great closing issue. Cause that's really, uh, again, Kirby creating and, and the sense of mystery that he brings to that. Um, otherwise I think you're right. I was going to say 93, the last of the Torgo, uh, story, because I feel that that's sort of Kirby and is like, this is what I'm most excited by, but you're right. The Harkness stuff as, as is a good bit of closure for the fantastic four with a new status quo, but it is also Kirby, like that more than issue 92 or 93 is a snapshot of so much of what we're going to be getting from Kirby at DC. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I have to say, Graham, I did have that moment while I was reading these issues being like, we should do like one of those great, you didn't see it coming swerves. And basically instead of following Baxter building and following FF follow after Kirby. this, yeah. Follow Kirby into DC <laughs> and turn it into a fourth world cast and make it everything uh, cover all of his issues. And I just think that that would be so much more satisfying for us. It would be kind of like completely fuck up our format. But, uh, cause after reading issues 103 and 104, I'm like, Holy shit. Like I, the best part of it. This is I've been telling you for ages that when Kirby goes, the book just goes downhill amazingly. 
And you're like, no, no, I remember. I swear to God, it, it immediately just takes an incredible nosedive because they can't recover for the longest time. Well, and I jumped in like uh, almost two issues after this, like almost literally. If you look at 104 being, you know, the wrap up of, you know, Kirby's last storyline, I'm willing to cut John Romita and uh, John Vitropitan, however you say his last name, got bless and r.i.p for putin? putin maybe um let me let me luke yeah for putin for putin's yeah it, who you know goes on to basically be the bullpen's all-purpose savior but like what looking at his inking here i'm just like oh god this guy is oh and i mean admittedly i'm like you know ramita like that guy has his strengths and weaknesses too i um uh, and and Verputin does not play into the strengths and seems to only heighten the weaknesses. So when you finish 104, I'm like, sure, Graham, if it were if they were all as bad as issue 104. But I, for myself, no doubt. Let, let's let's not just don't gloat just yet, my friend. We still have to get through issues 128 through 150. But yes, I do find myself going like, oh, I, I, I am Jesus. going to say, uh, listeners. We're not going to turn it into a, a fourth world podcast. No, Sorry, we're not. Jeff, um, know. next episode, we're going to do even more issues than we did this time. Yes, we have to. Are you ready? Yes. 103 through 112. <sighs> Why not make it 103 through 115? Is that not the end of a storyline? Uh, 112 is the end of a storyline. Oh, okay. And I, I, I'm doing 115 is like, I, I think asking us to do 12 issues is a lot. Asking oh, us to do 10 issues is a bunch. Well, I, I'm just accelerating through. You didn't read all the way up through 112, did you, Graham? No. Okay, thank God. Okay, 103 through 112. <laughs> I Yes, but that's that. It's it's such a Graham McMillan crazy, isn't it? <laughs> we can all no, agree that. That would case. be crazy. No. <laughs> What? No, I I would never do that. Okay, That's wait a minute. Now are you, okay? Now I'm confused. Did you actually read through that? You actually did, didn't you? I'll never tell. Oh my god. Oh. That's it. I'll never That's not a yes. I'm off the cast. I'm off the podcast. <laughs> Just get John Romita to co-podcast with you. Deceiver. Um, yeah. Well, uh, that would that would finally answer the question of which one of us is the Jack Kirby of this podcast. No, no, not really. It would be it, we. It it would finally answer the question of which one would actually try and force the circumstances of our recording to make it look like he was the Jack Kirby of the podcast. <laughs> but that's not the same thing at all. That, that, that could answer the question. That's fine. <laughs> um, hey, listeners, uh, that those are the last issues of Jack Kirby. It's we've done the entire 102 issue run of Stanley and Jack Kirby in a year. That's and right. All thanks to you wonderful Patreon people. Mm-hmm. Jeff, normally this is where I say something about Patreon, but I think you should say something about Patreon, in particular to particular Patreon supporters. Yes, uh, that is true. I mean, apart from our significant gratitude to all of our patrons who literally have made the Baxter Building uh, podcast possible, it was a uh, reward level that we set on Patreon that we have been so glad to be able to fulfill. And um, 
In part, we also have to pass along our thanks to the crew over at American Ninth Art Studios for their continuing support of this podcast, as well as special thanks to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, uh, for their continuing uh, role in helping make all of this possible. Uh, Graham, do you want to tell everyone where to find us? I will. Ladies, gentlemen, whatnots of somewhere else on the gender spectrum. You can find us on the internet at waitwhatpodcasts.com where we have show notes for this and every other goddamn episode we do, both of Baxter Building and Wait What. You can find us on Tumblr, waitwhatpods.tumblr.com, which is being somewhat slower right now because our Patreon supporters are also receiving some extra content uh, via an advent calendar. That's that right. we are doing for our Patreon supporters throughout the month of December. We're really up to the 24th because it's an advent calendar. Um, oh, and also, I should say, oh, it'll be, it'll be up by the time this has gone live. Jeff has written, like, the greatest thing that is going to go live on the podcast uh, a few days from when we're recording, but it will be in the past uh, when it is up. And you'll know what it is when you've read it, Patreon supporters. Um, those who would like to Find out more about this. Why don't you sign up for Patreon? It's patreon.com forward slash podcast. We're on Twitter. Uh, at waitwhatpodcast. Uh, Jeff is on Twitter by himself. Yes. At lazybastid. L-A-Z-Y-B-E-S-T-I-D. I am also on Twitter by myself. At Graham M. At G-R-A-E-M-E-M. I think that's it, right, Jeff? Yes. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher. You should leave reviews. We never tell people to leave reviews. You could leave reviews, people. That's That's right. That'd be cool with us. We'd we'd be okay with that. Been a while since we've gotten them, and uh, we'd very much appreciate them. Uh, Graham, uh, do you want to sing us out? Uh, No, because it's Baxter Building, Jeff. I don't do the... Oh, that's right. It's my tagline. so long, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, The Jeff's podcast Baxter Building. Oh, my goodness. Well, yes. You not yeah. sing as that, but offer the slogan. <sighs> Thank you so much for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time in the lobby of the Baxter Building. <laughs>